I don't think anyone has a stable childhood. There's lots of highs and lows which happen and all of these experiences make us who we are today. Um, but as I'm approaching 30, I feel that then that I want to kind of kind of get more from life. I'm I'm happy where I am, but I know that there's more. I don't look at it as, as shutting it out. I feel like it's just taking action to relieve any suffering that we may be we may be feeling in the moment. It's self compassion, isn't it? 22, 23. So being that young and doing CPR and then a patient dying from you is just very very difficult kind of circumstances to be and there was none of that I got silent treatment for like two weeks after that which made me feel like I'd done something thank you for doing this this is this is so exciting that you've uh, you've agreed to come onto the podcast um I've I listened to your uh, I listened to your second episode first the one with your husband with the regime which was fantastic I loved it um having done some podcast episodes with my wife I I resonated on a lot of things that you guys were talking about um and I'm, I'm kind of nearly towards the end of the one that you did with your father with your dad which was also fascinating um so there's lots I want to talk to you about and uh, but I want to I want to get straight into um, just go back going back a little bit because I always like to start going back a little bit because it gives not just me but anyone else that's listening just gives them a better understanding of you know where you're coming from what your um, you know what your life's been like so um, tell me what was it like for you growing up I know that's a real big open question to start off with but let's just start there what was it like for you so first of all thank you for inviting me on I love being able to tell my story as a podcast host I don't get that opportunity often so I think it's a really nice opportunity for me to just to start sharing parts of my story. So I think when I think about um, my beginnings, I have to go a bit further rather than the point of birth. We need to think beyond kind of what happened before that. So thinking about my parents, my dad was born in Uganda and moved to the UK when he was 11. My mom was um, born in India and came to the UK when she got married, which was age 23. So they both had very different upbringings um, and different things that were happening in their lives. Um, then I'm one of three children. So I've got an, an older sister and a younger sister. So I'm the middle child. And you can and make what you want of that, whether I've got middle child syndrome as we go through the conversation. Um, and, and when I kind of think about my childhood and my upbringing, um, I would probably say it was quite stable. Uh, and I get this when I speak to my patients, when I tell them, tell me about your life. And they'll be like, mm, childhood was pretty normal. Um, it was just stable. But actually, I don't think anyone has a stable childhood. There's lots of highs and lows which happen. And all of these experiences make us who we are today. So in terms of kind of the home setup, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, my dad was um, the main breadwinner for the family. Um, he went through lots of different kind of phases of work, but he was pretty much self-employed um, from the beginning. And now he's a high-performance coach, and he's been doing that for about 30, 35 years. So all of that kind of personal development, uh, touching on spirituality was embedded um, into my upbringing um, from a young age. And then from my mom's side and my dad's side, there was um, the culture and the religious side. And again, spirituality coming into that, because it's really hard to pick those things apart. So in terms of um, being brought up with the Hindu culture and Indian culture around me, um, that meant that I was exposed to kind of Indian arts and culture. So I went to dance classes from a young age, from like age four, I was going to dance classes every weekend. So I'd be dancing on the weekends and then school in the weekdays. 
Um, and so that really kind of um, enriched my childhood and upbringing. There was loads of things I learned from my dance classes and loads of things I learned from going to school. And they kind of came together and, and made me who I was growing up. And then in terms of kind of my education side of things, um, obviously, like most Indian parents, my um, parents pushed me to do as well as I could academically. Luckily, they didn't put all my self-worth on that. So um, there was never ever a comparison between me and my sisters, which was good. We were different academically and we were different in our strengths and weaknesses. I was particularly good at memory and recall. So that worked in my favor with academics. So I got good grades. So when it got to kind of um, the point where I had to make a decision about my career, which happens at the age of what, 15, 16, I decided at that time, well, you've got good GCSE grades, you're doing better than your peers, and the teachers are saying you need to make something of your life. So I thought, okay, I need to apply myself in the best way possible. Obviously, I turned to my parents for inspiration. So my dad was doing something to help people live their best version of themselves. My mom at that point had gone back into work and she was um, running a nursery. So it was all about education and enriching children. So I kind of wanted to Kind of help society and, and serve society. So I knew that was always going to be part of my career, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. And we'll talk a little bit about how I decided to go into medicine, uh, things like financial security, and why I chose to go down the route where I had a boss and an employer rather than being self-employed, which is basically the rest of my family. So I'm a bit of a black sheep in that context. But I decided medicine was the route I wanted to go down. Um, and even then there was ups and downs in deciding that was what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I've kind of progressed through my training. I chose psychiatry, which is being a specialist within mental health. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's where my kind of education career path took me. In terms of um, relationships, I, I um, kind of met my husband at university in, in my first year of university. We had our highs and lows and then uh, kind of it turned into a relationship that we wanted to take further and we got married two and a half years ago and things are, are really kind of amazing in that in that part of my life. Um, but as I'm approaching 30, I feel that then that I want to kind of kind of get more from life. I'm I'm happy where I am, but I know that there's more satisfaction I can get and more fulfillment I can get. I feel like I've got to a place where I'm just comfortable. I'm just coasting. But where I like to be is that kind of level of optimal discomfort where you still feel like you're getting challenged. And I don't feel like I'm doing that right now. Um, so that's kind of where I am, crossroads in my life right now. My husband's also making lots of decisions about his career and where he wants to go. So we're thinking about it together in a very intentional way. And maybe towards kind of um, the end of the podcast where it will fit in nicely, I can talk about, well, this was where I started. How have I turned that into action. So that's kind of like a, a brief summary of my background, where I'm coming from and where I hope to be going. You said quite a few things there, which, which, which I really want. I just want to pick up on a couple of points. You mentioned, um, I've just got it written down here, spiritual and religious family. Um, yeah. What does that, what did that look like to you when you were growing up? And what does that mean to you now? I'm interested to see sort of what your journey has been like with, with spirituality and religion. Yeah. So I think for most children that grow up with a, a Hindu background, they will be, they will go to all the festivals, they will go to the Mandir, the temple, uh, and get involved in this stuff. So that's very much from a young age. I was doing the rituals, we had a Mandir in the house. Um, and there wasn't really much choice about whether you wanted to be involved with that with a young age. And then as I 
grew up, I started questioning things, but in a very uh, kind of a, a curiosity kind of way, rather than I don't want to do this. Um, and I think that's where uh, my parents use spirituality to try to understand and explore things a little bit more. Because I'd be like, why are we doing this? Why is it relevant? Why do I have to get this milk and put it on that? Why, why are we doing this? It makes no sense. Um, and they try to explain it using spirituality. So it allowed me to ask the questions um, and to explore it through my own kind of lens. And then my dad used to do lots of reading um, as part of his job and personal development. So then I used to see how actually both those things connected. Spirituality, religion and culture was very much what um, people were talking about when they're thinking about personal development, finding your purpose, finding your why. When you think about that, that's it's set in in Hindu culture, finding your purpose is dharma. Um, so it, it came together and it helped those two um, ideas come together. But I still think that I went along with things just because I had to for a while. Um, and then I've been kind of exploring it even more so in the last two to three years. And for me, having belief that there is something bigger than just myself makes the world make sense more than there isn't anything. Um, and it's what I want to, when I, when I have children, that's the kind of way I want to do it as well. This is the religion and this is the rituals that we do. And I want you to question them. Um, and then I want to find out more about them, but then also separating the culture from religion, because there are a lot of things that are set in stone, like things like you can't go to the temple when you're on your period. Now that's not anything to do with spirituality. It's got nothing to do with religion and it's got nothing to do with being impure. So when I question that, my mom was like, actually, you're right. You can do whatever you want when you're on a period. So it's about, it's not about accept, once you, once your parents give you an answer, not about accepting everything, still having the freedom to question things and seeing what conclusions you come to. And that's very much been um, my journey in a nutshell. I feel like there's loads, I could do a whole podcast about religion and spirituality, um, but that's <laughs> yeah. a little snippet of it. Yeah, I love I love what you said there about the difference between culture and religion. You know, there's there's different things that you do. You mentioned, you know, going mm. going to the temple when when you're in your period. You know, I can think of things like you know, you, you, you obviously we we learn to eat with our hands, and I don't know if this was mm -hmm. something you did, but you, you're not allowed to eat with your left hand because that's yeah. the hand that you wipe your bottom with when you go to the yeah. toilet, right? Yeah. And then these yeah. these yeah. were these were the sorts of things that I also grew up with. But and and I did question them. It was a different time for me as well. And then you know, I just got that this is just because you know. So my 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 experience with with these cultural traditions. And, and religion is, is, has been a little bit different. So it's quite refreshing to hear from your side of things that when you challenge things, there was a no. You did you you made your parents stop and think and think. Actually, do you know what? Why why is this like that? So it's it's a. It, I think that fosters a very healthy relationship with it, as opposed to mm -hmm. you know. I'll be honest. I grew up. Um, kind of re, you know rebelling against it a little bit because it, I felt like perhaps it was pushed on toward onto me which you yeah. kind of mentioned we all kind of end up doing doing the things that our parents mm -hmm. do anyway um but without much explanation and and, and and also at the time for me you know when I was growing up there was no one else at school who was like me so we were the only ones doing things that way and you know it goes back to your point which I've written down here as well about you know you you felt like you could be yourself at home Mm. and not at school whereas it, for me it was definitely the other way around I felt like I could be myself when I was at school because I could just you know be free and talk about the things I wanted to talk about and do the things I wanted to do whereas when I was at home there was some it, there was some confinements there was there was laws there was restrictions there was rules and and I didn't really confine to those so mm. what was it about 
what was it that made you feel that you could be your genuine self at home? I mean, what, what was what do you think was a bit a part of that? What made that happen? I think I'll look at it the other way. It was more what was that outside of home that I couldn't be myself? And really looking at it, there was always this sense of wanting to fit in. At home, I didn't have to do anything to prove myself. But when I went into the went outside and when I was in school, I think I probably started realizing, oh, actually, I, I'm different. The color of my skin is different. My values are different. My religious beliefs are different. Probably, around, I can probably remember around like year two or year three, I started noticing there was a difference. And that's when I just separated the two things. And I was who I wanted to be at home. And I would do all the things that um, was were important to me, like my dancing. And then at school, I would be the person I needed to be to fit in. So you can ha- have friends and just kind of just blend in with everyone that's what it was very much about blending and it's taken me all these years to realize I was doing that for example with my dancing there wasn't anything to be ashamed of that I was doing Indian classical dancing but it was it was different and just that being different I didn't want to be different I just wanted to be the same as everyone else so on weekends I'd be dancing I would be going on tours with um, the dance company I was um, training with. I'd go and do competitions. And I remember once I, I did a competition and I came second in a national competition. And then when I went to school on Monday morning, it was just normal. There was like, there was just a total separation of it. Like usually if, if, you're, if you're being your authentic self, you could come back and you can tell your friends about it and be excited. And everyone's like, how's the weekend? Yeah, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, just a quiet one, chill, did nothing. So there was a part of me that just wanted to just be normal. And what that meant was shying away from my true self, not celebrating the, the the differences about myself. But now I'm coming to find that actually that's what makes me me. And I should be proud about it. I'm slowly starting to come into my authentic self. Mm. But that's taken some time. And I think it all comes down to, to shame. And it's a strong word to use, but it is. And it's weird because it's what is it? Shame about my religion, my culture, my identity. But it really was. And it's no, no, I don't think anyone made me feel that way. I, I don't know. I've still got to do some more deeper digging to find out where did this come from? Yeah. Well, I, you just took the words out of my mouth because one of my questions was going to be just to follow up that was it, was there a level of embarrassment? And I guess you used the word shame and embarrassment yeah. it can be used very similarly. And I, I certainly felt that myself is that if I went to a wedding or if I, you know, um, Raksha Bandhan, you know, you go to school with yeah. your, with your, with your Rakris on, you know, the next day and it was like, Oh, what's that on your wrist? And, and, and people yeah. would, I, I feel now looking back, I think people may have been genuinely interested because it was different. It was like, oh, what's, what's Sanjay wearing these things on his wrist for? There was an element, oh, mm-hmm. why are you wearing girly, girly jewelry and all this stuff? There's the mocking. But there was a genuine interest. But for me, it was like, oh, my God, people are looking at me because I'm different and no one else is doing these things. And I was embarrassed. There was a, there was there was shame there. And, and I think it comes from, again, not speaking for you, but for me, it, it came from what you just said earlier. It was about wanting to fit in. And I didn't want to be the odd one out. I didn't want to be the one that were people were looking at, even if there might have been an element of, hey, I'm genuinely interested in, in what that you're different, right? It's the, 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 you know, there's a split crowd there. That you're going to get a mixture, mm-hmm. mixture of both. But I saw mm-hmm. it as, mm-hmm. don't look at me. You know, I'm just, I'm just a normal. I'm just like everyone else. When of course, when mm-hmm. we we weren't, and it's difficult because, um, 
It's interesting to see that you had a very similar experience to me in that because you know we grew up in slightly different different times, but we had a very similar experience having been having been the the the, the children of immigrants to this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had this conversation recently with my dad, um, in that you know he's told me a lot about his story growing up and what it was like in Africa and in in Uganda where he was, and you know they had a hard time. And you would know this from from I guess from your work as in in psychiatry that everyone's experience on this planet is different and everyone's experience is valid. And someone, you may listen to a story and you think, well, that was, that sounds really tough. It must've, it must've been a really hard time. That doesn't make that person's story hold any more weight or gravitas when it comes to pain, when it comes to mm-hmm. um, trauma, any of those things as someone else. So, you know, I heard a, a wonderful example the other day on a podcast, which was, you know, you ask a child who's three, you know, they lived for three years. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to them? And it might have been that they they broke a toy, right? Well, their, their favorite toy, they lost it. They lost their favorite teddy. Mm. And that could be the, the most traumatic and the most uh, significant thing that's happened to them in their life that they that they haven't they haven't really enjoyed that experience. That and and you ask someone that's you know forty, they're going to have a completely different answer. And that per forty year old might say, you know, I I lost someone close to me. I, I went through this, whatever it is, right? But that doesn't make that person's pain any worse than the, than the three or four year old. It's just different. And yeah. our experience growing up as children of um, immigrants, you know, I, I kind of ex- had to explain to my dad that, that, that just imagine what it would have been like for me. And this is not, and again, I have to, I have to stress this with my parents because they always feel like I'm, I'm attacking them, whereas I'm not. I'm really just <laughs> coming from a genuine place of curiosity and saying, look, what, what do you think it was like for someone coming into this country who went to school? Everyone's different. You know, everyone's speaking a different language, right? Because I'm guessing your first, your mother tongue is Gujarati, just like mine yes. is. And yeah. everyone's speaking a different language and everyone's eating different foods. And, you know, there was this, who am I question that I I, I probably still have to, to, to this day. But I remember it's when I was growing up, it was, mm-hmm. who am I? Am I Indian? Am I, am I Asian? Am I British? Am I English? Am, you know, what am I? And I think that identity crisis is something that I think a lot of people do face. And it is, mm-hmm. you know, you're right. It's not some, it's nothing to be shamed of, but I think we have to, it takes some time to get to a place to be able to reflect back and, and, and think of it that way. I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. hundred percent. We can continue to ignore it, but you have to, you have to own it and you have to go deeper and name those feelings and name those situations. Mm. If I thought about it, I could probably, if I just thought deeply about it, I could probably find some kind of embarrassing instance that would have happened that made me feel that way. And then in my head, I, I made everything into, oh, I can't do that because it's going to make me feel embarrassed again. I want to hide away from ever feeling that way. And like you said, it could have been something really small, but in my child's brain it was traumatic enough for me to want to kind of hide away from my culture I give one small example I used to always be like if if my mom picked me up from school and she was giving one of my friends a lift I used to like hate it if she was listening to an Indian radio station simple things like that and then I'd be with one of my other friends and they'd be listening to like I don't know Capital and their mom would be singing along with the songs and I'd be like oh, why couldn't my mom just know those songs and and be up to date with pop culture simple things like that because I just felt if if they knew that then I could fit in but what what thinking back what a silly little thing to wish for but in in my child's brain and my child's experience that's what made me feel like if I had that then I would feel like comfortable and I could relax but again I was just wanting to be someone else to kind of just 
go under the radar, not be seen. Yeah, it's you know we are a product of our environment, and 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 yeah. I've had those same that same thought in my head, and you know when it comes to music, when it comes to you know sport, I used to, used to love going to play football and, and things, and you know everyone's parent, dads would come and watch them play, and you know my dad was working, yeah. and, and this is not I'm not blaming my dad for not being yeah. there. He was he was being the best parent he could by mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. working you know 15 hours a day just so we could have food on our table. So, but yeah. I remember at the time thinking. Why is my dad not here cheering me mm. on? And why is my dad not into football and taking me to football on the weekends? Because that's what people are around me. And yeah, you're right. It, it does come from that that level of embarrassment. And it's something silly, but again, it just comes back to fitting in. Um, so it's fascinating. Yeah. Again, it's just interesting to hear that 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 story from someone else. Um, and I'm sure there's mm -hmm. lots of people listening who, who are who are mm -hmm. resonating with mm -hmm. that. Um, I wanna I wanna kind of move forward a little bit and kind of talk about. Yeah. Um, you mentioned. Um, doing things that you, th you said, you know, I've, I've kind of done things that society uh, maybe expects of me or, or, you know, this, this, this image of life that society puts upon us, whether that's through your parents or through education or through the world in mm -hmm. general. Um, what was it that drove you towards doing psychiatry? Because you mentioned, you know, you, you we, we, I guess all, all parents want their kids to do well. All parents want their kids yeah. to, to educate themselves. I feel like um, there's a, sh I want to be careful I'd say this, but I feel like in the Asian culture, there's a very strong ethic behind that because mm -hmm. of the struggles that our parents have gone through. You know, for my parents, yes. was like, Look, we struggled exactly. a lot to come to this country to provide you with a lot. We had to go through a lot of struggle. And in order for you to not go through the same level of struggle, it's important that you get an education so that you have options when you are older to, to be able to look after yourself. So mm -hmm. I kind of want to get a picture of what was that like for you and what kind of drove you towards this, this area of psychiatry. Yeah, yeah. So actually... Like I said, my parents were quite open-minded. My dad was um, self-employed from the age of 30. So he definitely took a different path and took a big risk. Being from that immigrant background, um, he wanted to be a social worker. But then when he started doing the training, he was like, this is totally against my values. I cannot do this. And then just started being a youth worker for Bernardo's and slowly made his way up then got into um, human resources consulting. So he had like a very windy route to get to where he did. So he had the same open-mindedness for us. He was never kind of, although he said, yes, I think it was more my mom that said, work hard, do well at school. And they always provided us with everything we needed to be successful. Um, and then they kind of let us just choose what we wanted to do with our lives. But of course, I think that that immigrant mindset was still there for them because they didn't want us to struggle. So when I got... I think when I when I did my GCSEs, that's when I realized I was like, oh, actually, I get this things a little bit easier. Being academic is probably one of my strengths. Until that stage, I didn't really see it as one of my strengths. I would kind of just carry on. And I guess until there's something like GCSEs where you get kind of compared to the rest of your colleagues, you, you don't know how good you're doing. So at that point, it was kind of a turning point for me to think, okay, I want to use my grades to good use. So I kind of started going through the careers. My mom was like, well, you like maths. I used to love maths. She's like, why don't you be an accountant? I was like, yeah, it sounds a bit boring. She's like, why don't you do law? I was like, yeah, maybe. And then someone mentioned um, do medicine. And I don't have, and there's no one in my family um, that's done medicine in our extended family. I think we have to go quite kind of far quite wide to find someone that we have a relationship that has done medicine so it was totally new to me and my first initial reaction was like I don't want to do that because it's an Asian stereotype 
That was literally my response to being, I, I was like, I don't want to fit into that because everyone will think just because you're Indian, that's why you're doing medicine. So I was like, I don't want to fit into that. And then the more I started explore, I so just totally rejected it. And then I kind of, people at school, teachers were suggesting maybe you should think about that. Um, and then I realized actually, even though it is the stereotype being Indian is not enough to get into medicine. You actually have to work really hard and not every Indian becomes a doctor because it's not possible to do that. It's not just that does not, that is not the entry criteria and you, it's just not having pushy parents. That's not what gets you in. You actually have to have the grades and work hard. And I thought, okay, it actually does fit with what I want to do. I want to help people. So maybe I should give this path a go. And my parents said, do you know what? Give it a go. And if it's not what you expect it to be, just leave it and rethink. So there was always that um kind of support from them at the end of every year so it was a five-year degree that I did and at the end of every year we'd have exams and that's where I kind of really buckle down and work really hard and mom would see me and she'd be like you know what if this is too stressful just forget it just drop out and we can rethink about it have some time off and you can do so I was like no mom I enjoy this I really really do so I don't be persuading her to be like don't give up on me I can do this um but taking it one step back before I decided I wanted to do medicine it was between two things for me. I was either going to do medicine or I was going to do psychology at university. Psychology because I felt like it fit most with what my dad did, but it was like a bit more scientific um, and I liked the sciences. And also my sister had just done a degree in psychology as well. So it's normal just to feel comfortable and follow that route. Um, but at that point, I didn't ever think, oh, actually, let me do medicine because I can do psychology within that by doing psychiatry. I hadn't even heard of psychiatry. I didn't really know where it fit into the system. I kind of made psychology and psychiatry synonymous. And I thought, oh, you do something with psychology and you get there. And then in my fourth year of medicine, that's when we do our placement. Um, and up till that point, I had enjoyed everything that I did. I liked a bit of a &E, I liked a bit of general practice. And because I liked a little bit of every area of medicine, I thought general practice is the way for me. I want to be a family doctor. I want to see people of all ages. I want to follow the family through. That is for me. And then I did psychiatry and my mind was absolutely blown. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I get to see the patient as a whole. I get to ask them about their social life, about their upbringing, about their childhood, about what their dreams and goals are. And I get to help them with medication. I get to talk to them and help them with psychological therapies. And I get to support them with the social side of things as well. So at that point, I got really kind of into psychiatry and I could see myself being a psychiatrist. And to be honest, I haven't looked back since then. Um, so again, it happened almost by accident because I hadn't thought about it. And then I got a good placement in my fourth year, but it wasn't ever an intentional thing. But when I saw the patients I'd be working with and find out more about it, all the stars aligned and I thought this is for me. So that's a little bit about how I got into it. So I wouldn't even say it was, it was a bit like, um, random and luck. And that really makes me think about my life going forward. Cause I was like, I can't just keep relying on luck and being in the right place at the right time to get me to where I want. I really need to evaluate and think, what are my values? What are, what do I want to get from life? What is my life's purpose? And then move towards it there. Yeah. That intention, isn't it? Just making, mm -hmm. making the next part of your life more intention. Cause I feel, I feel like yeah. you do. I mean, and, and yeah, when you're young, you don't think it's not, you don't live your life thinking like that. You just do what you, yeah. what comes naturally. Right. And, and yeah. watching a child is a great example of that. Um, what was the degree that you were doing? You see, so you, in the fourth year, you got the placement. What was the actual degree? Yeah. So it's, so it's medicine. So to do psychiatry, um, it's, you have was to medicine. do. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 
when I decided between psychology and medicine, I went for medicine because I was like, this is going to challenge me a little okay. bit more. Right. I want to do this. Right. And, and then, yeah. Right. So just as you were talking there about why you liked psychiatry, it was like, it's because I can do this for that person because I can yeah. understand this about that person that yeah. and there's a few other things you said there so immediately what I can hear is you were doing things to help other people right yeah. and I, I I highlight that because at that age when you're you know studying at university perhaps not everyone perhaps and maybe this may be a generational thing as well perhaps it's like I want to do this because it will give me this i want to do this because it will get me there right so mm -hmm. the way you mm -hmm. just framed mm -hmm. it was very very different to how i've heard it framed before so were you aware of this were you aware of that you know you mentioned values uh, just now on purpose were you aware that this was a value that you had which again i'm, I'm trying not to put words in your mouth but mm -hmm. you know i want mm -hmm. to help people was that something you were aware of i think it was and it comes back to our conversation about religion and spirituality um okay. something that my my parents have always instilled in me is any gifts or talents you have you have a responsibility to share it with society and if you don't it makes you selfish so if you have something to offer you need to do the best of your abilities to make sure you can help the most amount of people with that so how that um kind of manifested in my life is okay well you're good at academics you're good at um remembering lots of facts and regurgitating it and using education you're good at problem solving you've got good communication skills so how can you put all those skills into a speciality and make that your life's purpose. So psychiatry fit all those boxes. It was very much aligned with the skill set I had. So I do think I was quite um, aware of that. And again, it was because it was something that was drummed into us from a young age. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so you're at you're at university. You're doing your medicine. You get this this placement. I guess that the, the placement is just the whole reason for the placement, right? Is to to get yeah. to experience expose new things to and yeah. to see yeah. to exposure to it and and see what resonates and and what you might want to do. So yeah. I think that's, it's fantastic mm -hmm. that you found that. Um, and of course, you also found your um, your husband. Yeah. <laughs> I say you found that he might have found you. You found <laughs> each other. Um, and so this was at, this was at university. So um, Raj yeah. Rajiv, who, who's your your yeah. uh, other half. Um, Tell me about that. So we met in first year and I was very much in a place where I was like, do you know what? So I'll, I'll share a little bit more personally. I don't mind sharing this because Raj knows all about it. But before I went to university, I was in like a, a teenage sweetheart relationship. Um, and I wanted to tell my parents about it because I felt really passionate about this relationship. And I thought the way that I make it serious is telling my parents. Um, and obviously being an Indian girl aged 18, telling your parents about a boyfriend is a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing in my, in my, um, family anyway, growing up who weren't allowed to have boyfriends, but then there'd be an age where you're allowed to have a boyfriend, but he can't be a boyfriend. He has to become kind of your fiance or something. And then you have to get married. So that was what we were still told. So even though my parents were open-minded, when it came to relationships, it was something that we mm. really didn't meet eye to eye on. So I decided to tell my my dad and I, I brought it up and I said, so I've got, so this wasn't about Raj, this was about this this boyfriend that I had um, kind of in the last few years of college. And I said, oh, I've got this boyfriend. And um, I thought he was going to like, I didn't know what the reaction was going to be, but I was like, I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to fight for this because this is what I want. Just young me feeling like I'm, I'm really wise and know everything about life and love. <laughs> and then my dad just calmly said, he said, okay. What you need to understand is you've probably met kind of 1% of 
of all the people you're going to meet in your life. You're still very early in your life and you've been exposed to school. That's as far as your social connections go. Because the next few years of your life, you are going to go into a whole new world where you can decide who you connect with. Um, there's going to be lots of new experiences that you're exposed to and there's going to be lots of growth. So what I suggest is that you don't commit to this. And that just made all the sense to me. And I said, you're right. So I literally broke up with that boyfriend and went to university ready to experience life. Um, so in my first year, I kind of said, no, not getting into any relationships. I'm here for the experience to find out truly what do I want from life and allow myself to grow without any kind of restrictions of being in a relationship and what that might mean for me. Mm. But then um, I met Raj and I, I we were we were kind of, I guess from the starting, there was always some kind of connection. I I knew that I wanted him to be more than a friend, but I was like, I don't want to do it just yet. First year of uni, I've still got five years left. Don't want to, I just want to have fun with my friends. Um, and I, I voiced that to him and he was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. We can, we can just be friends. And then a week later he was like, so my friends were just asking like what's happening with us. So I told him, told them that you're my girlfriend. And I was like, okay, then. And then that was it. So it was like the relationship was the relationship state was forced upon me. However, um, I was very happy about it. Uh, and and then we had our ups and downs through uni because I think what my dad said was important. We are still growing at that stage, so we were both going through different phases of personal growth as we went through a very difficult course. You're still living in a bit of a bubble when you're at university. Um, um, but through those experiences, we grew and our relationship grew stronger. When we went, then we both moved back home. So we were both at university together. And then he moved back to Leicester. I moved back. I moved in with my parents back in Birmingham. So there was that distance and we were working on shifts. So it was really hard to kind of meet each other. And it felt like we were doing a long distance, even though we were only one hour away. Um, but then things kind of just settled down and we said, you know, actually the best way for us to spend time together is to get married. And it took Raj a bit of convincing to decide. We met in the middle. I wanted to get married in one year. He said three years. We got married in two years. Um, and that's kind of led us to where we were. So, yeah, I think the, the main, the thing that I kept holding on to was what my dad said is that you have to grow yourself and then you'll be able to find the person and just be open to so many more experiences rather than just saying, I'm going to find that person to spend the whole of my life with when you're quite young. And that's sold to us again in society, isn't it? Like teenage love. And and some of these things, they work out. I've got friends that have, they've, they've kind of been together since they've been like 13, 14, and they've got married. And and that's that works for some people. But I just think I really enjoyed having that space to grow and refine myself in those really crucial years uh, and be my own person and then work out what do I want from life? What do I want from a partner? And now we're on a journey where we're growing together, which is really important. So we've still given ourselves that space. We might be going on different tangents, but supporting each other with it. Amazing. I love that. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate, appreciate that. Um, so you met Raj in the, in the, in the first year of university. Yeah. So at what point, yeah. I'm interested to know, what point did you tell your dad? Well, <laughs> they say that they knew I, I wanted to again just be as honest as possible so I pretty much told them um quite soon after and my mom was like what a boyfriend and I'm like yeah she's like surely not and she just wanted me to call him like a special friend I'm like no mom he's a boyfriend okay we're exclusive <laughs> like 
it is a boyfriend. I know you, you're in denial and you don't want me to say that, but I'm being honest with you and I'm telling you, you can make whatever you want from it. Um, and I think my, my dad kind of asked me a few weeks into the relationship, like, oh, you seem different. What's going on? So then I, I use that as an opportunity to tell him. It was really funny because in our um, in our wedding speech, my dad pretended as if I he didn't know about how long we'd been dating. Um, so one of my friends gave a speech and he said they've been together for eight years. And then when my dad did his speech, he was like, oh, I thought they'd be going out for five years um, it was all just for, <laughs> for a joke. But they joke. knew pretty early on. Um, and yeah, I think my dad felt that he'd done his part by telling me his bit of wisdom. And that I'd applied it now, so he was. He, they were fine with it, surprisingly. Fantastic. But I've always been out, out of my three sisters. I've always been the one that pushes the boat out and a bit of a rebel. So if I want something, I will just do it and then tell my patients, about, my parents about it later, and then they can make of it what they want. <laughs> it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission, right? That's yes, that's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, li- yeah. I live by that as well. So Raj was he was on the same. Um, university course. Uh, courses you so he's doing medicine yeah and, and he's yeah. now yeah. training to be a gp yeah that's right yeah it's so there's, at the end now. there's those slightly mm-hmm. different paths okay so you, mm-hmm. so you go through university you're 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 with raj um mm-hmm. what what's what's what happens next what's kind of your your journey what, what was your sort of do you remember your mindset then what did you want to do i guess even at that time when i was choosing psychiatry just to go a little bit back um I had a lot of um, people telling me don't do it. So psychiatry is a used to be up to up until like the last two years, really under recruited area mm. uh, because there's not much kind of fame or fun or status associated with it. Even within the the medical community, if you're a psychiatrist, there's lots of you're kind of looked down on. Okay. You're not that prestige. If you're a surgeon, that's great. And I, right. and I remember people. On my, when I used to do my training, people ask me, what do you want to do? I say psychiatry and they'll say, you know, you can really do better than that. As if it was like wow. the, the dumb person's choice or like you can, you should apply for surgery because you'd be really good at doing that and you can apply yourself. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I might be good at it, but I don't enjoy it. And it's not what I want to do with my life. So I had a lot of that. Even Raj at one point, he wasn't very supportive of me doing psychiatry. It was really funny. And then at one point I just used to say, I just had to put my foot down and say, Raj, every time that you are... um saying things about psychiatry you are not being supportive so I need you if you've got nothing to say better I just don't want you to make any comments about psychiatry that's what I'm going to do and that's the way I'm going to go forward so there's lots of still again at that point um people dissuading me from that career um so yeah and then I guess we both looking back at time even though I decided I wanted to do psychiatry so I had that clarity when you're at med school, you're still living in a bubble. So you still really don't know what you want from life. You still mm-hmm. a bit naive. And then you get out of university, you graduate in July. And then in August, you start your job as a doctor. And it is the the most scariest thing ever. It's the biggest transition you have to ever make. You think kind of going from like secondary school to college as a transition and college to university, this was like something that you could never prepare for. And I was always a very diligent student, like worked hard, knew my stuff, but nothing prepared you for doing kind of 12 hour day, doing night shifts on your own and all the emotional experiences. And it was probably the most difficult two years of my life 
doing those years. So what happens in training is once you um, graduate, you have to do two years. It's called foundation years, foundation year one and two within the NHS. And in that you rotate between jobs every four months. So every four months you'll do a new job. And that's so that you can learn all the basic skills you need to. And then after that, you decide to do your speciality. So even though I need, knew I needed to do psychiatry, I have to go through these hurdles of doing the two years. Mm. Um, and the only thing that really kept me going is knowing that I had psychiatry at the end. But it was really, really difficult. I remember one of my um, first night shifts and a patient died and I knew the patient really well. I knew all my patients really well. I'd always have that emotional connection with them. I'd get to know their family, get to know their story more than that's bed three with appendicitis or something like that. Mm. So when I was working in surgery, first night shift and my patient died. And it was the most horrific experience ever in terms of the support I was given, lack of support I was given, kind of lack of debrief. Um, and I was going on straight after the night shift, I was going on holiday because I had some days off. And I remember having nightmares for like the next two weeks of that scenario, just replaying it, waking up screaming, not sleeping well, um, and just becoming a really cautious cautious doctor anything I did I'd be second guessing myself although there was zero there was nothing that I did wrong in that patient's case mm. or anything it was a really unwell patient and they died but it really really impacted me and the only thing that got me through at that point was staying up living at home with my um, family and, and lots of doctors don't do that when they go and do their jobs and mm. um, the way it works is you do an exam after you finish your medicine degree and you get ranked in the whole of the UK um, and depending on how you score based on all your exams you've done so far and then one other exam, you get scored. Um, and then you say where you want to go, where you want to work. And depending on where you are on that ranking, you get placed there. So let's say I was second in that ranking, I would get my first choice. But if I was kind of 200th in that ranking, I might have to be, I might get my 20th job choice. I see. Um, so lucky for me I got to stay at home with my family and that was the thing that got me through because otherwise there wasn't that support in the hospitals to get me through that and there were so many more experiences I had like that I probably had three where it really damaged my mental health and I was having nightmares and flashbacks that lasted about two three weeks and then I was able to kind of get myself back to normal functioning because I had the family support around me um, and the care and the attention they just kept me on track but yeah, it was really difficult. It was hard. And even at that time, it was hard to kind of bring your full self to a relationship. It was pretty much Raj was working, I was working, and then we'd find time to meet like one day a month uh, and see how we're doing. And that can have a real toll on the relationship as well. But we, the thing that got us both going through is this is the hardest part and it's going to be over in two years. And then we can think about getting married. So yeah, yeah. that's a little bit of a snapshot. And there's a really good TV yeah. show on, on the moment, which is called This Is Going To Hurt. And it's a really good depiction of what it's like um, to be a junior doctor and the stresses that you have to go under. Because you have to remember when you're newly qualified, I was what, uh, 22, 23. So being that young and doing CPR and then a patient dying in front of you is just very, very difficult kind of circumstances to be in. So yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. it's been like, what, 10 years since that? that time and it still feels as crystal clear as it happened i mean yeah it's a it's a sorry to hear that you went through that experience and again thank mm. you for sharing but it's it's trauma isn't it it's a traumatic experience that we, yeah. we go through and yeah. it, it etches in your memory um you mentioned this is going to hurt which i'm, I'm sure mm. many people are watching i actually find that quite difficult to watch that show um and i'm sure i'm not the only one and i'm not even a doctor i'm not even a medical you yeah. know I don't even work in hospital yeah. my wife does yeah. and, and uh and it is it is quite 
harrowing um just to see what 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 people go through and there's the i haven't watched all of it but there's a junior doctor in 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 that isn't there and you can see her the the stress that she goes through and and her experience and and i always i always wondered that i was like you know that that moment where it's like okay it's over to you here you go and you're like you mentioned you're the person on you're Mm -hmm. the person in hospital who any anything goes wrong they're coming to you you. that's you and i would just feel that that's an awful a lot of pressure uh on a young on a young set of shoulders albeit they've studied for so long the academics are good all of that all of that in that moment in that situation in that in that situation you are a human being who's been exposed to a traumatic event and you're you're going to respond in that way and and i think Mm. no no amount of training is going to help with that and i think things like us talking about it other podcasts talking about it this tv show i think there's there's Mm -hmm. more awareness Mm -hmm. now being brought into into the um into the mainstream about this because how many doctors you know i just sit back and think and this is not to think too negatively about the world but it's like how many lives young lives who have had amazing aspirations to what go on and do great things have been literally just stopped dead in their tracks because of that those first two years or that first year's experience and and i'm sure that there's there's date statistics on this and it's And I think with more awareness, we can we can try to help. And you mentioned there was a lack of support when, when you went through this. And I, I'm sure that's, again, yeah. I'm not speaking on behalf of the NHS. I would like to think there is a gradual shift towards changing that because there's yeah. a lot more yes. emphasis on mental health, not just mm-hmm. for patients or people using the NHS services, but for, for the staff and the, 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 the yeah, practitioners yeah. themselves. So... I like to think that 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 is changing uh, as we yeah, go forward. There but. is more support, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it's the culture that needs to change, isn't it? Right. Because we can keep putting in courses, and you can have an extra debrief. But what I really needed in that moment was my consultant just to sit with me and say, "Okay, this is really difficult. It's your first one. This happens. This is how I felt when I went through it. What support do you need to move forward? How can we help yeah. you?" And there was none of that. I got silent treatment for like two weeks after that, which made me feel like I'd done something wrong. Sure. When actually there was nothing. And I was constantly checking the patient's notes and seeing, was there an update? Was there going to be a coroner's? Was there going to be an investigation? Because suddenly I thought, well, if he's not speaking to me, that must mean that I've done something wrong. But there was nothing. Mm. And I spoke, to, mm. I remember obsessing over it and talking to colleagues about it and all the details. And they're like, there's there's not, nothing. Like it was just, that was going to happen. And it was unfortunate that it happened. Um, but yeah. And you were the that one that was there playing in my head yeah yeah and the fact that i was yeah. there i felt that makes me responsible for it yeah yeah, yeah. i'm sorry to hear that so obviously um your husband was working uh, at the same time as well did it help yeah. having him because you may he may have gone through similar experiences and 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 you know had a, had a similar experience to you as well it's funny because he talks about it now and he was like i remember the first shift that i went i came home and i cried and i was like i didn't know about that you didn't ring me, you didn't tell me. (laughs) So I think in that moment, there's almost maybe some, again, bringing back to shame, some shame that like, I've, I'm here, I've made it, but oh shit, do I want this? Like, this is, Mm -hmm. can I handle this? And you start questioning, like, are you good enough for it? I definitely question like, am I good enough to do this job? It's that imposter Um, syndrome, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And he must've thought, I'm sure I did share it with him, probably didn't share it because I was in such a state of shock, how badly it had affected me or that I was crying pre, 
before every shift and after every shift. I probably, maybe I didn't share that with him. Again, there was that shame of, oh, what if he thinks I'm not coping? Mm. Must have been there underlying, even if I wasn't aware of it. Um, and he talks about it now and I'm like, oh, I went through the same. And it was really, really difficult. Um, so I, I don't think we shared as much as we wanted. And then when we saw each other, we were so excited to see each other and we miss each other so much. Then it was just about going out and spending the money that we had earned on fancy meals and having a good time. And again, just shutting it away. Let's pretend that difficult thing isn't happening. We've got a day to spend together. Let's just make the most of it. And well, that would be it really. But that's, I mean. Way that, of coping, I guess. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism, but I wouldn't, I, would, mm. I don't look at it as, as shutting it out. I feel like it's just mm. taking action to relieve yeah. any suffering yeah. that we may be, we may be feeling in the moment. It's self-compassion, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's saying, look, mm. I'm going through a hard time right now. Um, it's been a terrible experience. What can I do to make myself feel better? I want to spend some time with my loved one. We're going to enjoy mm. ourselves. We're going to spend our hard-earned money on yeah. whatever yeah. it is. Uh, and I want to talk about that because I heard your conversation with your husband about spending money which we'll talk about in a moment um and i want to as i said just relieve some of that suffering but there's a there's an awareness around that so i think that's that's perfectly normal and a perfectly um, yeah. good thing to do um you mentioned money so what I, I wasn't what i wanted to ask you now uh, but i heard it wasn't in the podcast it wasn't in the podcast you were talking about this right yes. about how yes. your approach to to spending money and how your approach to life is right now um yeah. so to tell us a bit about that because wh what i what i took from that is that there's a lot of intention and thought behind mm -hmm. what where you put your energies now so can you yeah. can you t tell us a little bit about that Massively. I think I'd like to first start with just my relationship with money, actually, because that's where the awareness needs to start. Rather than thinking, what where am I spending money on right now? You need to think, how, where did my ideas about money come from? Mm. And although I say I had a stable upbringing, my dad was self-employed and he was the main breadwinner. And this is, a, this is something that I'm going to do a whole podcast with my dad on. Um, but little side story. We went to we were in a, a normal government school and then my mum thought, Do you know what, this isn't good enough. And it was a time when like, uh, I don't think there was like homework wasn't normal. Mum was like, why are they not getting homework? They need to get homework because that's the way they're going to learn. So then they, they found a private school. So we all went to this private school for a year, but unfortunately it was closing down. Um, my dad was very interested in education and he thinks that the best way to improve society is through education because every child goes through education. So then he decided that he was going to take over this private school and he did. So he got on board um, the rest of the parents and said, OK, well, we'll be the board of directors for this school and we will fund this school. We will put our children through it. And that's the way that we can keep it going because this community really needs it um, and there's a need for it. So so let's do it. Unfortunately, all the parents then backed down and weren't willing to contribute financially. So my dad kind of self-funded the whole project uh, with all his savings we remortgaged our house which was almost about to be paid off and got into this um kind of let's start this private school and it was great but of course my dad knew the stuff about the education but the business side of things the investment just wasn't there even though he'd pumped so much money into it and then the thing that we needed also was children to keep applying for it. But we were in the, the area that we lived in. There wasn't a, a real demand for a private school where it had opened. Mm. So that led to about five years of financial ups and downs, like crazy ups and downs. And um, 
friends and family that listen to this, they will not even be aware of it because my dad didn't, and my mom and dad both did an amazing effort of still giving us everything that we needed, the basic needs and the nice little luxuries, despite the bank balance being like absolutely rubbish and still keeping their cool through all of this. Like my, the close family friends that know my dad, they're like, we're so surprised you haven't had a heart attack or stroke, the amount of stress you're under then. So I think that's where my relationship with money kind of started because prior to that, everything was very, very stable. I didn't really think about money. But at that point I realized, oh, money comes and goes and you can have a deficit of it and it can make life really, really stressful. Because I remember my mom being very stressed about it. So I think that also leads into why I decided to do medicine. Because even though my parents were very much self-employed life that's all I'd seen it was funny that I'm the only one that had gone into doing a job which I had a boss and I had a monthly pay slip and I knew what that pay slip was going to be because that really that did traumatize me seeing those fluctuations in that in in kind of finances so that's where I chose to do um to do medicine that's where it partly came from Uh, and it also part of me felt like because I'd I'd kind of grown up with a nice stable lifestyle part of me wanted to do the whole keeping up appearances part. So when I did have money, I wanted to portray a very stable financial life. Um, and that would mean that I'd want to spend on nice fancy things, nice clothes, things like that. So very superficial things. So when I started, and I started earning money from quite a young age, me and my, see the inter- entrepreneurial side came through, me and my sister started a dance company when we were 16. And we got paid for weekly classes. And we also used to do dances at people's weddings, which used to earn us quite a lot, lot of money um, back in then. So it was a bit more than pocket pocket money. So when I used to get that money, I used to go and get myself a new handbag or buy some nice clothes and things. It used to be very superficial because in my head, again, I think it comes from the shame part of thing. The shame kind of kicked in with a lack of money. There was shame associated with that. Okay, so you need to show to everyone everything is fine how do you do that by having fancy things so I think that's why my um, journey with kind of relationship with money started and involved um and then as I think it's probably changed when I got married and Raj would be like why are you paying so much for that and I'd be like just that's how much you pay for it and he's like no you can look for deals you can get vouchers you can be a bit more savvy and I looked at him and I was like Raj don't be so stingy and he was like no, babe, it's not about being stingy. It's just about if you've got money, we've got to treat each penny carefully and use it intentionally. I was like, mm, okay, yeah, maybe. And that's when I started being a bit more savvy with my money. And then I went a bit deeper and thought, actually, why do I need this? And was questioning everything that I was buying. Was I doing it for keeping up appearances? Yes. So then it started really kind of scaling back and thinking, okay, what do you actually need in life? And then I was also going through um, kind of learning about the Marie Kondo method, which is about decluttering and having less. And if you've got less, then your mind is clearer. So I thought, okay, well, both of these things kind of fit together. So now the way I think about money, um, I'm trying to improve my relationship with it. So I see money more as an energy, as a type of energy. So you need money to keep things going. It's the energy that keeps things flowing. So you still need a basic amount. The more money you have can give you energy to do more, so help others. But in terms of your personal life, there isn't much money that you actually need. So when we do shopping, when I, I, do, um, I do a clothes shop every six months 
and I will buy like four or five items and that's about it. So I have very minimal wardrobe now. I have 30 items in my wardrobe that I rotate every season um, and that's how I work out. So it cuts out that decision-making as well. And I am no longer spending like before when I used to live with my parents, there used to be ASOS parcels coming through the door all the time. <laughs> and it used to be constant. And I used to want like the newest thing, the nicest thing. And I never, I, I'd buy things. I'd be like, oh, I'll, I'll buy this and I can wear it in the future. And I never wear it in the future. So there's lots of kind of, I just want to look the best. I would never want to repeat an outfit twice. Really silly, superficial things when I look back at it. But it was all from this place of shame and wanting to create an image that so that even if things weren't going well well I, I could still dress up nice and people won't know that something's going on in the background so yeah so that that's where we are with money now we um spend very very carefully the things that we do like to spend on is experiences um so we like to have um, nice holidays to experience different cultures and also really use that time to rest and rejuvenate and, and shut off from anywhere. Mm. And maybe this will change and maybe we will go to more uh, kind of, I guess, basic and less expensive holidays we may do. But that's where we prioritize our, our spends at the moment. And then we also like um, having nice meals with our friends and each other because that's a place where we feel we can connect and socialize and really relax as well. So that's like a... Um, bit of a it goes a bit round to explain um about the money and the spending but that's how I've got there so I I think any everyone should really be thinking what is my relationship from money how have I understood money from a young age what have I been through to create that narrative about money and how do I want to change that now because it'd be silly for me to say oh now I'm at a place where I don't need money well actually I do because I'm living in society if I was a monk that'd be different if I was doing something else that'd be different but at this moment in time, I need money to sustain a lifestyle, but that lifestyle can be as minimalist as possible. Not what society thinks I need, but what I need. So on the podcast, we talk about our house uh, and people thinking that, well, if you've got two, two doctor incomes, then surely you should be getting a really nice house. We've got a house which is half of what we were told we could afford. Again, why do you want to live with such a big debt if you don't need it? Is it just for keeping up appearances? It's quite a lot of, to pay if you want to show your house off once a year to someone that's going to come that doesn't really match you. So yeah, that's yeah it's such a it's money. such a um, refreshing approach because it's the same. Me and my wife have had this very similar experience and similar kind of um, uh, kind of how we've structured things. And you know, just like you, you know, I, I'm I'm more than my wife. You know, I'm very much about. Been, been about keeping up appearances you know I started mm. I started in a career very early I came across money very very early in my life and I was like oh this is great and back then you know money was the answer you know I well that's what I was led to believe by society that it, it's all about earning money um going back but go back to something you said earlier about how you got um people were trying to dissuade you from the career that you you chose as a psychiatry and you, you stuck mm-hmm. to your guns mm-hmm. I remember I wanted to go into um, physiotherapy and I got dissuaded very similar. Like you are, oh, you, you can't earn any money. It was, and that was the, yeah. that was the main argument. You're not going to mm-hmm. earn any money as a, as a physiotherapist. Why would you want to waste your time doing that? Mm-hmm. And that was enough for me. I was like, Oh yeah. Okay, fine. What, huh? what, where can I earn the most money? And, and I think about, well, why did I want to earn all that money? And it was really just to have the things, you know, my dad was self-employed as well. We, we weren't poor by any stretch of the imagination, but we, we weren't, you know, there wasn't an abundance of money, you know, I Mm -hmm. still had to buy Mm -hmm. my trainers from Woolworths and, you know, I had to, um, not, I couldn't wear the, the, the brands that everyone else was wearing. And so when I had money, 
I felt like I had to go back and fix that. And and in my adult life, I have to have the nicest things. I have to have the nice suits and have the whatever it is. Um, and later in life, it was more about well, what's really what's what's really important to me? What's going to bring me the most satisfaction? And mm -hmm. you know, having met mm -hmm. my wife and living abroad for for so many years, it was about those experiences. It was about having connection and you know one of my favorite phrases at the moment is connection is the key to fulfillment so thank you Nilesh, mm. uh, Nilesh Satguru yeah. for, for that phrase but he, he says it all the time connection is the key to fulfillment so what you've just said is that you're spending money on holidays and going out for nice meals with your friends all of that is about connecting with people all of that is about connection because through that connection we feel more fulfilled we feel like mm -hmm. i'm actually living a life which is purposeful mm -hmm. living a life which is you know is meaningful to me and if yeah. that means to you having experiences that are gonna you know live with you for the rest of your life as opposed to a handbag or a pair of trainers or a phone that you're gonna probably throw out after a mm -hmm. couple of years yeah. um and you know i i learned this lesson very recently um in the last sort of 10 years actually since meeting my wife because I, I looked mm -hmm. at her grandparents and it was the first time i met asian indian gujarati grandparents you know uh, both parents fortunately for her at the time grandmother mm -hmm. and grandfather who would just travel the world and they would just constantly be out on on cruises on you know on planes on going on safari and going to these places yeah. and i remember speaking to him about this and he said in this is the, this is my wife's grandfather and he said he goes you money just like you said money's going to come and go mm. the things you buy with money will, will come and go but what you're going to remember when you're my age is the experiences that you've you've had in your life and that's so true isn't it it's those experiences so how how can i make those experiences as enriching and as fulfilling as possible. And for me and for us, that meant spending a lot of our money on um, on travel at the time. So mm -hmm. we, you know, when we when we lived overseas before this was before before children, um, that that we would travel a lot. We would spend money on yeah. holidays. We like you, we did long distance for for some years before we were married, and that was great because that meant when we did spend time together it was meaningful it was you know we would spend the money um on you know on a holiday or on a on a staycation uh, we even had uh, we even had something it's the first time i'm saying this out loud in public we even had a love fund um, and the love fund was you know we both put in money every month to this one bank account mm -hmm. and that would be you know, i think it was 100 quid each i think at the time so we mm -hmm. put 100 so it's 200 quid a month going into this fund and then whenever we got together we got to spend that money and you know That's that love nice. fund funded holidays and travels and all yeah. sorts of things so um yeah, it's that intention, isn't it? Just coming back to what we were saying. It's having that mm -hmm, intention mm -hmm. of why do I want to spend this money? But the story about you buying your house and thinking, I don't need a big house. And there, and you mentioned it, but I want to kind of touch on this point a little bit more. There must have been this the, the stereotype you mentioned, it, two doctors, you must have a big house. You might, you know, that, that stereotype stereotype is there, but you know, it, it, it must have been quite difficult to to sort of separate yourself from that. Or, or was it? Maybe it wasn't for you. It, I think it was all a process. It took us quite a long time to get our house. So right. in that time, we viewed loads of things. And the house we've got right now was the cheapest we viewed. It was it was properly at the lower end. And actually, it wasn't even on our radar because it was so cheap. It wasn't in our filters of our searching. So it was excluded from our minds. So you're right. right. It wasn't something that we both kind of came to realization suddenly before we started searching. It took some searching to do. Um, and I think 
from Raj's point of view, I'm not blaming him, but he was very much more about the, we need the big fancy nice house. And it took some time to persuade him that, look, actually we can get nice things, but we don't have to spend so much on it. Mm. And the one phrase I kept using was, we've got to live within our means, not about what other people want. And that's not, I wasn't saying, look, we're poor, we need a cheap house. I wasn't saying that. I'm saying, let's just try to, because like, it's false money, isn't it? When you get a mortgage for half a million house, that is all debt. It's yeah. it's not like you have, unless you're going to be a cash buyer, which we're definitely not in the position for, then that is all debt. So you, what, what do you earn? You, what have you earned? Well, you have earned a huge debt. To see it like that rather than kind of, oh, we're going for a cheaper house. I was like, we can have a smaller debt as instead of a larger debt. So think of it like that. And we've got to keep living within our means. Think about what is affordable for us? What gives us freedom, flexibility? What are our priorities? We didn't want to go for a more expensive house if it meant that we couldn't go on our holidays. So we had to do that important priority. We had to think, where do we want our money to go? And also we want that flexibility. Raj is now able to not work for two months because we can pay the mortgage on my salary. And that's really important. If that, if we went for a more expensive house, he would not have the option and he would be forced into doing some full-time GP work um, for, for a long time. And then when you have children, you have the finances with that as well. So we wanted something that would give us flexibility. And there's loads of, there's lots of extremes of this. We are doing a very, a smaller version of this, but some people will say, well, I've seen these programs where people have these, I can't remember what they're called, they're maybe mini houses or one tiny bedroom. Homes. Tiny, tiny house, homes. that's it. Yes, tiny homes. So they've gone to the full extreme and they've bought something which costs them like £500 and that's it. They are mortgage free. They don't have any kind of financial responsibility or anything. That they can move around and do whatever they feel. If they don't want to work, they don't have to work at all. They can just live. So that's one extreme of it. Obviously, we're not there and, and it takes a lot to live a life like that. But we can achieve it in small things. So everyone might be, when they're listening to this, they're like, oh, it's all right for you. Like Maybe you're in a different place. But no, actually, everyone can think about how they're using their money. Are you trying to do more savings? Are you shopping around for things? And in my head, I've, I had to get rid of that stereotype that actually shopping around and making savings is stingy. Again, comes from the <laughs> yes. experiences. Why would you pay yes. more for something if you can pay less for it? No one's going to know how much you paid for it. Only you will know. So pay less. So, yeah. And that that very, that very thought came from my family a lot about, and I don't know what it is, maybe because sometimes Patels are kind of scrutinized for being stingy. So maybe my parents really didn't want to be stingy. So they would pay whatever for anything. They would never bargain or they would pretend they're bargaining and they'd be really awful at it and probably end up paying more than they were supposed to. So <laughs> I had to undo that thinking as well. So, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a stereotype there. You mentioned the Patels, but I think just generally there's a, there's a stereotype that Indians, you know, Gujarati people, we're, we're, we're stingy, we're a stingy yeah. culture. So uh, yeah. maybe there's a part of, maybe there's a part of me when I was young, I, th- I look back now and I think definitely there was this like, it's like, Hey, I ain't stingy. Look at me, you know, yeah. I've yeah, got yeah, yeah. a mate and, and I'd go into the bar after work. Oh yeah. I'll buy everyone a drink, you know? And it was, mm-hmm. again, it was keeping up appearances. It's like, Oh, look at Sanjay. He's not a typical Indian. He's, he's, he likes yeah. to spend his money. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. there's an element of that, but, um, yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, it is, I mean, how many people do fall into that? I don't want to call it a trap because for some people it may be a, a way of life that they enjoy, but mm-hmm. how many people mm-hmm. do fall into that, you know, society's way of doing things? You know, you mentioned two doctors, young, 
yeah, so it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a, you mentioned the salary, it's a guaranteed salary, it's a decent salary, there's two of you, yeah. oh, yeah. let's buy this big house, we need both of us to work to pay, oh no, now we both have to work to yeah. pay this mortgage yeah. off. Um, it, it's almost like suddenly, to me, the way I look at it is the world, it, your, your view is like this of the world, and then you get that mortgage, you get, the, you, you need the two of you to work, and suddenly it becomes like that, it's like, right, yeah. what You're am I, what is options. my purpose in, yeah, what is my purpose in life? Well, my purpose in life now is to pay this huge mortgage, mortgage. That I'm in debt of, yeah. and look after my children and pay for their whatever mm. I got to pay for them. And then you just end up waking up and you're 45, 50 years old, and you just think, "What have I done? What, what's been going on?" And then on you'll be life? like, and, "I'll do you know, it. I'll do it when I retire." And I absolutely hate that phrase. If you want to do something, do it now. Why are you waiting until you're old? You might be in a wheelchair. God knows what's in store for you in terms of your health. What you can control is right now. So you can do something. Yes. Yeah. Do the things that you were that you are really passionate about now. Live yeah. your life. You know, for for us it was holidays as well. It's like let's mm -hmm. make sure we can mm -hmm. and you know, we, we lived abroad for ten years, so we had that freedom. And I think we never we you know, and again I used to get all sort of why are you paying rent? You know, you're paying you've been paying rent for oh, God, so I long. Have that as well. Yeah. And <laughs> You know, and I look back and I, yeah, if I wanted to go back and calculate, if I really wanted to depress myself, I could go back and calculate how much rent I've oh, given to yeah. someone else. I'm not going to do that because at the time it gave, it enabled me an element of freedom mm -hmm. to be able to mm -hmm. do the things that I wanted to do, to move countries, to move around within that country, to come back here and live after in the, in, look, we've been back here for four years and we've lived in several different places before we bought yeah. this home. Mm -hmm. And even before buying this home, we were both like, do we really want to commit wanna to this? Like, settle down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, is this, we're married, we've got kids, but we'd still, you know, it became real the moment we signed that mortgage, that mortgage mm -hmm. paper. Mm -hmm. um, so I get it. I totally get it. And, um, yeah. and I think knowing those values and knowing that you're being intentioned with your spending and, 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 and it's not to say that your home isn't something you value because of course you do, but mm -hmm. the way that I think about things and the places I've lived in, in my life, I've lived in rental places and I've never thought of them as, as someone else's because you make it what you want, right? You make it your home, you mm -hmm. make it your creature comforts. And, um, yeah, your home is just where your heart is in it. So, um, mm. I, I love, I love that, that way of thinking. And, and it, and I think it also helps you to highlight what really is important to you. It's like, okay, well, if I have to pay this, these, these this, this is my level of this, this is my outgoings. These are my bills. What's that going to stop me? from being able to do in my life that I really enjoy doing. And a lot of people may go through this in a, in a different way. So they might say, well, okay, well, we, we've got this mortgage, we've got these bills. Oh, I can't go to the gym anymore. So I'm going to stop going to the gym. Oh, I can't have um, private medical insurance. So I'm going to yeah. stop doing that. Yeah. And all these things that we start to take away from our lives. Well, we put them in there in the first place because they probably meant something to us. And then mm. you're, you're, you're make it, it's almost, again, I feel like in society, it's like, well, you, you should be making those sacrifices because mm -hmm. you need to have a home. You need to be investing in a home. You need to be investing in a future. And yes, you absolutely do have to do a lot of those things, but I just feel like a lot of people and, you know, having, having gone through this myself, I feel like we do it but at the sacrifice of, of oneself, you know, you, yeah. you sacrifice your own well-being, your own purpose in life, your own things that you want to do for the sake of this, this model that society has put in front of you of what mm -hmm. life sh should be like. Um, yeah. and yeah. I just feel like there's, there's a different way. Yeah. And just touching on that, like people are like, yeah, well, you can't have it all, but you can, it just depends what your definition of 
have it all is. Because if your definition of have it all is what Instagram is showing you, yes, you can't. Because you don't know what actually is going on in that person. Like they do not have it all. They are materialistic. They've got it. But are they lacking emotionally? Yes, massively. Do they have problems with body image? Yes, hugely. That's why they have to put all those pictures up. So you need to decide what your have it all looks like. And when you actually put it on paper, it's not much at all. It's literally so minimal and half of it doesn't even cost money because it's things like relationships. So once you decide what your have it all is, then you can make sure that everything that you do works towards that. Like you yeah. said, doing it that way around rather than, okay, I've got all these things. Now I need to see if I can fit in my priorities and actually it doesn't yeah. fit in. So I need to forego that. No, you don't need to. Yeah. And, and people think like things like private medical insurance that, oh, you have to be really privileged to have it. No, actually, because if you just looked at your finances in a really, really smart way, obviously you need to have a certain basic income salary. Sure. I think a lot more people would be able to afford that private medical insurance. And this might sound really controversial, but try it yourself. Go through your finances, see what you're paying for. Maybe actually, do you, what do you value more, Netflix or that private medical insurance? So there's some ways that you can think about it. And actually, even though I've this idea about where I'm spending my money, I feel like I'm in a good place right now. I have to constantly reevaluate that. I was just thinking about it the other day. I was like, we're spending quite a lot of money on going out. What I'm really enjoying right now is cooking and hosting. So I was like, Raj, when we go forward now, instead of going out for these meals, let's have small dinner parties at our house because it's really nice. Some people haven't seen our home. We can host and I can make all these nice dishes. So that's, again, another way. It doesn't take away from that connection just a cheaper way of doing it because it's going to cost me like what yeah. 10 pound from aldi to get all my ingredients that's it as opposed to me and him both spending 50 pounds on a meal 100 pounds on going out and it saves the other person as well recently my friends were saying oh this is my 30th in april and they were like what are you going to do and i said i don't want to do anything and they're like no but but i we really want to celebrate you and i go i said we get to ce- I, you get to celebrate me all the time i was like on that on my birthday you can take 5 minutes to reflect on me just do that cuz it's not going to cost you it's not going to cost me it's good use of your time and your money um they were like no but we really want you and i was like look the reason why 30 celebrations are big is because society has made it a big thing why is it 30 why is it not 20 why did no one say 20 was going to be the time where you do a big celebration yeah we do 21 coming of age all of these things are created by society so I was like I don't really want to do anything I've already decided I'm going on a really nice holiday with my husband that's how I am spending my money on myself for my 30th but I was like I don't see why I need you to spend money if we go out for a fancy meal like that's going to be a waste of your time and your money and it, and, and it sounds a bit too drastic, but that's how I feel right now. And I'm like, I was speaking to my husband about it. And he was like, are you sure you really don't want to do anything? I was like, I really don't want to. I think I've been celebrating my birthday in fancy ways up till now, because that's what society said. And I didn't feel like I had an option. But now that I know I do have the option, I was like, the most it will be is again, we'll host a little house party at our home. And that's it, just with our closest friends and families. And I was like, are we more than content with that? Um, we, we can call it a housewarming slash birthday party because again I don't think that it needs to have so much kind of um, hoo-ha around it and so much money poured into it like we spend so much money I spent so much money on my wedding and looking back I would do things differently I absolutely loved it, it was the best thing ever but I know I could have got the same because the thing that made that celebration so good was the love and the connection that we had with people and we could create that for much smaller kind of money so yeah, that's about how I'm trying to use it in practice every day and just being really intentional. 
Yeah, I love that. I think that's that's a, that's a good, um, it's just a, a good way to think about things. And and you know, especially you know, without sounding like the the, uh, the the older guy, the older person telling you, oh, you know, young. But it does as a younger person, I think, before having kids as well, that's a quite a mm. a nice way to think about things. Because of course, when when children do, if children come along, there's there's going to be yeah. obviously a lot of a, lot, a lot of changes to that. that. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then you kind of have to reevaluate. And I heard you also, mm-hmm. I think it was on the story you mentioned about raising kids um, yeah. and how you had different views and opinions on, um, yeah, we talked about society and education. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. talked about that, you know, as, 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 as growing up, I'm sure, again, I mentioned it before, all parents want their kids to do well, but there, I feel mm-hmm. like as an Asian, there was a little bit more emphasis on, you yeah. know, you must what go to you university, do. you must get mm-hmm, an education, what mm-hmm. you do. Yeah. And, um, you have a slightly different take on this. So can you just share a little bit about what you yeah, were talking yeah, about yeah. the other day about your, your differences of, of, of viewpoint on that? Yeah. So we were talking about like when our, our children grow up we don't have any children yet about what we want them to do in life I don't know where the conversation started um and I, I explained to her I was like we have to be very intentional with our parenting and we have to make sure we're not letting all the outside kind of societal experiences becoming becoming our how we parent we should think about how we want to parent I said one of the most important things is making sure that children have a choice of what they want to do in life we have to give them we have to give them all the experiences. So, okay, if they want to do karate, take them there. If they want to do an instrument and give them as much experiences in their life, but then it's up to them to decide which path they want to take. And if that means that they want to, the example that I gave, and I wanted to give in a really extreme example on purpose, just to see what he would say. I was like, if they want to work in McDonald's and that's their life purpose, that's fine. Let them do that. And he was like, no, they have to go to university. I was like, no, they don't, Raj, because maybe that's not where their skills are. We... That's where our skills are. We are academic. There is nothing to say that our children will like that or will thrive in that area, will enjoy it. And you've learned yourself that actually just being good at something doesn't mean you're going to enjoy it. So I was like, we just have to let them do what they want to do. And if you let someone um, encourage them to pursue their passion, they will automatically become successful um, with that. And then the money will follow rather than thinking, where is the money? Let me go where the money is. So yeah, that's the kind of our conversation that we had in a nutshell. And, and the mm-hmm. thing that I was touching on with that is uh, my younger sister. She is a professional Indian classical contemporary dancer. She didn't go to university. So straight after she finished, it was really funny because my parents, they, they tried their best, but doing parenting is also a learning curve. So we always say that my eldest sister, she was kind of the guinea pig. <laughs> and then things got better <laughs> as we went down. So with her, in their minds, they said university, go to university. My dad wasn't allowed to take his English GCSE because they said that because he was an immigrant, he has to do another version of an English exam, like a oh basics English. So because of that, he couldn't go to university when he wanted to. And then he ended up doing right. master's when he was 30 later on. So he, I think in his head, he wanted to make sure that there was no barriers for us to go to university. So she wanted to really do makeup and kind of creative industry. And she wanted to do like high fashion makeup and things like that. But she was told, no, you have to go to university. So there was that pressure for her. So she went to university, did a, a degree in psychology and then finished. Didn't really enjoy anything. Tried a few placements. In the end, she um, started doing her makeup and now she is a very successful makeup artist. Um, 
So when it came to me, I was a little bit, I guess, a bit straightforward. I kind of decided what I wanted to do. They guided me and then I ended up doing what I wanted. And I'm coming back to the doing something a bit more self-employed side of things. With my little sister, she um, always been really creative. Her um, academics has never been her her strongest suit. And that was fine. That was actually celebrated. I remember whenever she had exams out, we'd always plan we were going to go for a meal to celebrate. But there was never emphasis on what grade she got. So I remember once we went to a meal and she'd got a a, a D in maths and my parents had been paying for pri- private tuition for her to improve her maths <laughs> and it was fine. And it was nice because that experience re- made her realize that actually my grades is not what makes my worth. The fact that I tried and I gave it a go, it's all right. We still celebrated that I actually sat the exam and whatever came of it, came of it. So she's very creative. So she wanted to do fine art at university. My mom was a little bit like, when you do find out what you're going to do. And video was like, oh, I think I might work in an art gallery. I'm not too sure. We'll just see what happens. Um, but my parents were very supportive of her her decisions. She applied for the course. She got it. She deferred the entry because she was like, do you know what? I think my dance might go somewhere. They were like, all right. So we'd all been trained in dancing, but we, we kind of did it professionally to a certain age and then it became a hobby. We kind of let it slide. Well, my parents were very encouraging. They loved us dancing. They always wanted to just progress in that area. So she um, took a year out. She went to India, trained. And then there was this competition that was launched. It was called BBC Young Dancer. And it was the first year that they were kind of putting together all dancers in the UK and broadcasting on the BBC. And she got to the finals and she represented South Asian dance in the finals on BBC and it was the most amazing moment ever and that kick-started her career so from that point she she kind of gave up her university place didn't go to university and since then has been building her career and she's in an international kind of superstar now she's brilliant and actually what she's done has paved the way for lots of dancers. So I know lots of stories of other dancers that have got the courage that at her age or even older that have given up their jobs or not done the conventional route because they've seen actually, if you put everything into it, you will get it back. And it it has its highs and lows and lots of sacrifices. It's a hard journey. Um, But that's what she's earned. And I said, look, Raj, if it wasn't for my parents pushing her, the world would have been um, kind of, they wouldn't have seen videos beautiful art and they would have been robbed of her because when she's on stage, I always say it's like divinity on stage. Something happens and it's like a higher force at play. And I said, imagine if my parents had been strong. We don't know what our child is going to be. They might be a musician. They might be an artist. Um, they might be an entrepreneur. They may be a scientist. And we just have to give them everything, nurture them, let them go on the path. And it might not be an easy path and they might fail a, a few times along the way. We have to keep encouraging them and showing them but it's yeah. not your passes or fails that make yourself worth. It's the trying and the effort yeah. um, that really counts. So I was just reflecting on really how Vidya's career turned out and how good it was. And I, and, um, I think over time, Raj has now understood that in the podcast, we talk about how he now doesn't mind if our children don't go to university and is much more open to that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think there's so much, so much, you know, so much good that you said there and as someone myself who hasn't been to university um yeah, yeah. you know uh, your, the example of your sister is is a great one because you know she's now living her life with real purpose and and really yeah. uh, with real passion doing something that she genuinely is mm-hmm. is passionate about and 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 I truly believe I really do believe that just putting your energy into things that are meaningful to you things that 
you know, resonate with you. No one else. It's not for other people's benefit. Yeah, there may be a benefit to other people. Hey, they get to watch yeah. your dance and they feel they feel good, but you're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it because yeah. you enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. Then if you just focus on that, the, I feel like the world will work in a way where if you want to do that as your career, the, the, the money will come, right? The income will come. The, 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 the purpose of doing it, as I said earlier, is not I'm doing this because it's going to earn me the most money. And, and yeah. that's the question, I, unfortunately, I asked myself at that young age, like what's... What 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 can I do that's going to earn me the most money the fastest? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. for some people that's that makes them tick. But I realized very early on it wasn't wasn't what made me tick. So it's great to hear that story about your sister and her doing doing that work. And of course, it's influenced your view on life. And and again, as as someone yeah. who's gone through university yourself, both you and your your husband, um, just allowing kids to just flourish and and, and mm. nurture themselves. And and I th- feel like. You know, there's. We keep coming back to this. This society. Yeah, there is. It, it's. It's very easy to slip into that mindset because you know when you go to school, that's what you're surrounded with. And again, I have hope for the future that it's going to change. That kids are going to learn more about the world. They're going to learn more about how to look after oneself. Let alone, you know, how to look after. Sorry, how to learn the academics, but how to look after yourself, how to eat well, how to live well, how to manage stress. All of these things that life throws at you, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, University might be a part of that journey for someone. It may not be, but there's so many. uh, And I think if you look back through history, there'll be so many examples of people like your sister who have gone against the grain, right? They've gone Mm -hmm. against, no, I'm not Mm -hmm. going to do what society wants. Let's really even go back to, you know, the the civil rights movement, you know, know, equality in, in, in races. You know, someone, someone had to you know, sit, Rosa Parks had to sit with, with in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a spot in a bus that she wasn't allowed to sit in. Someone had to push that first domino, right? Yeah. And yeah. when you do, and you and it was a, or a thread, and you just keep pulling on that mm. thread, you never know mm. what, what's going to open what's up for you. Come. So I just, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've, I kind of see it in a, in a very micro, in a nano kind of world with my daughter in that yeah. you know, she's only four. But... At first, when she was born, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to get her to do all the things that I love. And is, yeah, and I think I parents fall into this you. trap. It's like, yeah, yeah so you, you want to, yeah, because you feel like, well, am I, and I ask myself now, am I doing this because I want something from this or am I doing it because she genuinely wants it? And I remember once when the option of doing football on the Saturday morning came up mm-hmm. and she was like really excited about it. She's like, yeah, I really want to, I want to do it. I was like, you sure? She's like, yeah, yeah, dad. And then we can play football together. And, you know, you like watching football. And I was like, okay. And I was really excited. I was like, cool, this is great. My, my daughter wants to play football. And she went for a couple of weeks and she's like, I don't like it anymore. Yeah. I was like, oh. And, and I, at first I was like, well, no, you have to go. Of course you have to yeah. go. Yeah. And I was disheartened. And I was like, well, why am I disappointed? I was like, well, I'm disappointed because it's something that I would have loved my child to be into because mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. But if she doesn't like it, then well, why would I force her to do this? I said, what, what do you like to do? She goes, I love to do ballet. It's like a cool. Well, look, finish this the next few weeks this term, and we'll look at ballet classes. But the point is, and look, this is not to. And some people will say to me, "You're spoiling that child, right? I don't want to do this. I want to do that." So it's a fine line. And, and, and as a parent, I've had to I've had to think about this. I think, well, do I yeah. put my foot down and say, "No, you have to do football because that's what yeah. I paid for and that's mm-hmm. what I want you to do," mm-hmm. or do I allow them to change their mind and? and normalize that it is okay to change your mind and it is okay that you thought you wanted to do something but you didn't and again I've been through that experience in my life with changes in my career and I've had to 
have that self-compassion because it didn't come from anywhere else to say, no, if you want to change careers, if you want to move countries, if you want to get married, um, if you want to do this, then it's okay for you to do those things, no matter what mm -hmm. any other, what other, other people are saying. So, so you are asking the question about whether letting your children experience different things is actually spoiling them or enriching them. And I would say that you are definitely enriching them. When you are exposing them to different activities, it's not like a toy, which is just materialistic. They're having a whole experience and they're learning skills. So we can't, we can't kind of equate that to being spoiled and be like, well, you're just giving your child everything. And also I think I've been, I've been kind of um, thinking about this in my own life. And a lot of the time we are told, well, if you start something, you need to finish it or see it through. But actually, I think that like trying to apply that, yes, it might apply in some circumstance, but we can't use that like random quote to every situation in our lives. Um, and, and that's why when, you, when you're talking about your daughter and now actually football is not what she's connecting with anymore, but she's finding something else. That's perfect. But actually she had to go through the process of trying football to realize it wasn't for her. And that has led her to this new path of thinking, actually, I want to try ballet. I want to try something else. I want to do something physical, but this is actually not fitting with what I enjoy, where my skill set at. So I think that's amazing and that we should be letting our children do that. But really we shouldn't stop as children. This is something that we should continue doing every single day of our lives intentionally. We are evolving and dynamic and we shouldn't kind of um, pigeonhole ourselves into one place. And, and once we've decided and we've told the world, oh, this is what I want to do, there's no reason why you can't say, actually, I don't want to do that. I want to do something different or I want to do something in addition of that. We are multifaceted. We aren't robots that are programmed to do one thing. That works in a society that needs an output, whether that's helping the economy, go around or or kind of helping a boss somewhere succeed that kind of mentality is required but if we want to live in a society where everyone is kind of uh, working to their highest potential we all need to realize we are multifaceted and then we can work in different areas trying to work like that to just give a very practical example I'm doing a piece of um, kind of some teamwork with a colleague at work at the moment um, and I enjoy the work that I'm doing, but my values are not aligning with this person I'm working with. Now, I could tell myself, well, if you start something, you need to finish it. Actually, finishing it means that I need to say I can't continue with this project. I don't need to see the project to the end because I know it's causing me lots of worry, stress. It's not sitting with me right. So the, the best situation for this project is for me to say, I need to step away and I can't do this. And you'd say the same about a, a bad relationship. You need to, you don't need to see anything till the end. The actual way to see it to the end is say, we're going to stop this right here. And, there, and there's, there's beauty in knowing when to walk away. And I think we are scared of doing that. We're worried about, well, what if I actually need that? So it's, it's really important to be able to try something new, but also know when to stop and when it's not working. Uh, and it sounds like a failure, but it's not. It's You're just opening up doors for something else. You, you just said something really beautiful there. And you said, you know, um, there's, a, there's a beauty in knowing when to walk away. And this is such an important topic. And I was listening to, um, do you know Stephen Bartlett? Um, yes. I was listening yes. to his, his audio book, Happy Sexy yeah. Millionaire. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard it, but, or listen, read his book. But he, I haven't it, read his book okay, yet. Okay, so in, in his book, he talks about quitting. And he says how quitting 
we've been made to believe by society that quitting is for losers, right? And just as you said, if you start something, you must finish it. And the way he frames it is that quitting is for winners. If you can, if, to know when to walk away from something, to quit something that is not serving you, is not moving you forward, that's where the power is. And that kind of comes back to, to the point you were making earlier about <clears throat> children and the curiosity. You know, I think this is one of the, one of the greatest qualities that children have naturally, right? This has not been put into them by any, by any parent, any environment. It just nat comes naturally, is this curiosity, right? From the moment they are born, they are extremely curious about everything. And I think when they get to an age, like for example, my daughter did, and, if, and you know, the football example is a good example of the environment, right? So she, she's at home, she sees dad's watching football, dad's into football, dad like, you know, he's talking about football. So kids obviously want to do what their parents do. So when, and you know, I didn't tell her, do you want to play football? She said, oh, I want to do football. I was like, oh, okay, really cool. And then, like you said, she, she figured out it wasn't for her, but she was still curious and said, oh, well, what else would I like to do? And I think that embracing that and just encouraging them to say, look, it's okay to try different things. I mean, gosh, I look, think back and, you know, I, I tried to learn to play the drums. I tried to play to learn, learn the piano. I tried to learn the guitar. I did um, Gujarati classes. I did tabla, tabla classes. You know, I did all of these different things when I was a child and of all the things I've just mentioned, I'm not doing any of them now, but it enriched my experience. And, and I think you, you touched right at the beginning, you said about experience. And I think that is, is the key, isn't it? And you, you think of, even as adults, we think of, you know, what's, what's going to give us the, the, the most enriching experience. And you think about, we, we like, people like to travel, they like to see the world, they like to try different things. And I think that's the same for a child. And yeah, if it's a material thing, if it's, you know, you're buying them iPads and fancy trainers and you know we talked about it earlier you're materialistic the, the materialistic world then yeah there's there's an element of spoiling there but of course if you've got the means to do it then hey that's fine that's fine exactly yeah exactly yeah. however right. yeah i do i do believe that just allowing them at this age of course as long as you're not you know i'm not stretching myself financially or you know pushing the boat out to try and get her to do these things so for me i'm in a fortunate position where i can allow her to try different things and if she wants to chop and change then she chops and changes so yeah it's it's a very thank you for for pointing that out because i think I think that 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 curiosity i feel like we lose it as adults yeah we we go through life we go and we talked about this as well the kind of the society you go to university you get a job you, this is this is this is what i need to do this is what's expected of me in life and we just lose that curiosity and one thing i think and this is just me talking about myself is i feel like i've always been very curious even in my adult life. And that's kind of helped me to get to where I am now because I've always thought, you know, and I had to walk away from a career. I had to walk away from a, a very high paying job. And, and that was, that was difficult. But the reasons I wanted to do it was so powerful and so great that it just, it just was the right thing to do. And if I hadn't been curious about what else can I do? What are my, what are my passions and hobbies? What do I really want to do in my life? If I hadn't had that thought process and that curiosity, then I could still be in a job where I was, was, was miserable. To, to, to be frank and so I think that's a very important point 100% and we should like look at children to learn how to be because like you said that's our true being the true essence of us is what we are as children I was just on a walk before this recording and it was a really odd observation I made and I'm, I'm not offending any pet owners here <laughs> I don't have any pets but I used to have a pet and I'm very respectable of dogs and, and they're great companions but I saw how 
the dog owner was treating their dog like, oh, my puppy is really excitable, hasn't calmed down yet. And then the other um, dog owner was like, don't worry, um, give it some time. It's a really, uh, that, that age is a really difficult time, but you'll be able to kind of tame them down. Then I saw a mom complaining about their child to another mom as well in the same way. Like, oh, my child is so loud and noisy, like just need something to calm them down. I'm like, are we just domesticating our children and our dogs in the same way? <laughs> like, is that what we're doing? But we are, aren't we? We're trying to make it fit into a mode, into kind of a mold that is, that is not, it's one mold for everyone. So we have to just let our children be as, as free as possible. Because in school, we are told to sit down in a chair and sit there for what, six hours. And we're not made to do that at all. So when kids are not at school, just let them be free. The kid was shouting in a park that they were not disturbing anyone at all. Their voice was kind of disappearing into the air. So just let the child just be free and wild. And they will be much more behaved and disciplined if you let them be free, because they will just learn from others and learn through curiosity and, and find a way of being that that fits in to kind of society and, and fits and works for them. So yeah, some just obs- simple observations from my walk in the park. For someone that hasn't got children, that's that's a really great um, way to look at things because yeah, I remember when I didn't have kids and you would hear a screaming child, whether wherever it was, right? And and you, your instant thought is shut your child up, right? Shut that, them up. Yeah, yeah. That, me. I say your and my instant thought at the time was, like, oh my goodness, shut your child up. And <laughs> I, I remember, yeah, I'm sure we, we sure you were. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, gosh, if I have a child, I'm never going to let my child behave like that in public. And all these, you know, these, these are, these are the things that went through my mind. But you're absolutely right. Every child is different. Every child's got its own spirit. Um, I was just talking to, a, I was, I had spent a few days with a friend of mine. They've got a, a new, uh, I said, a six month old and she's going through some sleep issues and, and, and a phase. And, you know, I'm looking at their their experience and I didn't go through that. We didn't have that same problem. Now, does that mean that his child, there's something wrong with his child? No, that's just, that's just the child. During the day, this child is an absolute angel. I mean, six months old, what what harm does a six month old do? It's it's a a happy baby. Mm -hmm. It's playful. It will go to strangers. It will play with me. It doesn't know me that well, but it will still play with me. And at nighttime, something just happens to that child and it's, it's not happy. Right. Um, Every child's different, right? And yes, the the children need to play. Children need to express themselves. And that's why they, that's why kids, they're just burning off energy, right? Kids mm-hmm, love mm-hmm. running around. They love climbing yeah. on things. They, they've got all of this energy to burn. And I think we need to encourage that as much as possible in the early Stimulate years. Stimulate them. Yeah. And they can use that energy in a good way. Kind of make them use their brains. Give them what they need to need. Again, you don't need to get expensive toys. My mom, this is what we used to play with. She used to be cooking dinner and she used to put all the pots and pans on the kitchen floor. And that's what we used to play with. Literally just banging them together. That would used to be our toys. Should They'd buy us all the toys. We wouldn't play with that. We'd play with the fun stuff. Because we used to look at mom and be like, I want to do what mom's doing, but do it on the floor, on the kitchen floor. So it doesn't take much. We just have to engage them in other ways. Again, I don't have children. So I hopefully I'm able to take how I think right now into that time when I do have children, because I can understand it's so stressful. It's overwhelming. And sometimes you just need the child to be quiet for some peace and quiet. So I, I'm, I'm speaking from a very naive um, standpoint. So we, we can kind of catch up again when I do have well, children. Yeah, I was going to say, we can, like we can, we can, you can listen back to this, this exact <laughs> yeah. recording. As reminder. As a reminder, yeah. or, I'll, or I'll, if I'm still in touch with you, I'll remind you. Say, hey, remember what you said? Um, yeah, and I, and I think you're just to touch on something else you mentioned there, which I think is such an important point. And I've mentioned this before on this podcast. Is yeah, children do play, but you you're absolutely right. They get to what four, five years old, and it's sit down, be quiet, don't move, and it's like that from the age of five to eighteen. Yeah, and then you go to university, and it's a little bit different. 
And that period of their life is such a crucial, that 10 years of their lives, 10, 12 years of their lives, it's, it's really a the forming years of their lives. So if they're not, if they have to be disciplined at school, which is fine, I, I get schools have to work a certain way and I'm not blaming the schools at all. Mm -hmm. it's just, the system needs exactly. to change. However, they need to have that expression of just expressing themselves outside of school. And I think this is something which, um, <clears throat> you know, some some people grow up in a, in a work, in, an, in an environment where they go to school and they come home and it's the same thing. Your know, parents can be very, um, strict with homework and you know home is almost a, 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 an extension of school and that's fine I get it I get parents have a responsibility to make sure their kids are doing well but there has to be an element of that child discovering who they are because they might get you know you and I know I've known people like this where they get to 16 17 18 and they're so drilled in the academics that they don't actually know who they are. They don't have any, you know, real passions or hobbies. You know, it's it's almost their whole world narrative is based on academics and education. And, you know, that's not really going to see that child in a, in a good way when they are living independently, trying to live their life, have a family, do all these different things. So I think, yeah, that, that element of play is so important. Um, talking of play, let's talk to the opposite of play, which is work. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I want to, I want to just touch on the the work cause we haven't, we've spent spoken all this time. We haven't really spoken about yeah. the work that you're doing now. So your, your professional job. So you are a, a psychiatrist. Um, and I think the first question a lot of people have when they hear the term psychiatry is how does that differ from psychology? Because the two are often used um, interchangeably. So could you maybe just give us a quick overview? What is the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Yeah, I think the best place to start is our, our training. So our training is totally different. To become a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, um, you need to do a degree in psychology. And then you need to do a, another degree after that, which is actually really tough to get onto. They only have like a select number of places in the UK to, to become a clinical psychologist. So that's another three years. So a lot of kind of work goes into it and you have to do lots of research work during that time. And then you will become a clinical psychologist at the end of it. For psychiatry, you have to do medicine, so a five or six year degree. You do your foundation year one and two, which I spoke about. And then at that point, you decide, okay, what specialty do you want to do? Do I want to be a GP? Do I want to be a surgeon? And psychiatry is one of the subspecialities you can go into. And then that's a whole six year program to become a consultant psychiatrist. So within that program, I am four years in and I've got two years left till I become a consultant. Now, the roles are different as well. So what a psychiatrist, they both work closely together in a mental health team. Um, a psychiatrist will generally, but kind of these roles are kind of merging as we, as we speak and in the future, but a psychiatrist will generally see the patient and give the diagnosis by taking a full history. So that history taking will take about an hour. And it's a little bit like what we've been doing, talking about my life, what I've been through, how have I ended up where I am right now? But obviously the people that I'm speaking to have been through some difficult circumstances, more lows than highs that have led them to have a mental illness. So we talk about that. Then I kind of match up their symptoms and put a diagnosis on. And then based on the diagnosis, I um, decide on what therapy they need. So that could be medication. And I'm the one that will just prescribe that medication. Um, I will decide if they're ready for psychological therapy. So that's talking therapy and then see what social support they need as well. So we take a very holistic view in psychiatry. So 
the arm of treatment of talking therapies that is delivered by the psychologist. So they will see the patient and they will treat them. So they will decide what type of therapy they need. So whether they need cognitive behavioral therapy, whether they need um, um, dialectical behavior therapy, and there's loads of different therapy types. Um, so they can carry out that therapy. So we work very closely. Psychologists deliver one arm of the treatment. Psychiatrists generally take an overview and see, okay, where are you at? What do we need to do with medication? They'll be the ones that prescribe the medication, do the diagnosis, review the patient. Um, and then in different teams, um, psychiatrists will tend to be kind of the team leader and lead the whole team, bring it together and do kind of leadership and management roles as well. So that's kind of a very quick snapshot of how our roles differ. But they both help people get better from the mental health difficulties, um, but just using different approaches. So a psychologist isn't a doctor doesn't have the title doctor. So they still have doctor. They still have the title. Their name. Right. But they're not a medical doctor. So that's the difference. I see. Okay. All right. That that makes sense. Um, So what types of, you know, what types of, um, I don't know what the right word is, what's the types of conditions, you know, um, illnesses, I guess, you know, what kind of things do people come to a psychiatrist with? What what are the things that you see on a day-to-day basis? So the way that it works in the NHS, if we think about like the patient journey, there are lots of places where you can get mental health help. Now, the majority is dealt by the GP. So if someone came in with, and I'm putting inverted commas, um, uncomplicated or mild depression and anxiety, they would go to their GP. And the GP does most of um, the mental health care. So they will prescribe antidepressants, um, refer them to a a therapist to have some low-level psychological input um, and manage them in the community and see how much help they need. Now, if there is a patient that, they have high risk. So let's say that someone comes to the GP and they are talking about their suicidal thoughts, self-harming, or presenting in a complicated way, then they will be referred to the psychiatrist. It's a bit like if you've got diabetes, you will see your GP and a GP will think about diet, exercise, start you on some metformin. But actually, if it gets to a point where you need some specialist help, you'll be referred to the diabetes team and you'll see a diabetologist. So someone, it's a doctor that specializes in diabetes. So it's similar like that. So the things that are a little bit more complex and, and psychiatrists look after would be conditions like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. So we see all schizophrenia patients because they need kind of input right from the beginning to get them on medication quickly, prevent relapses. We see um, depression that doesn't get better with kind of like two antidepressants or a combination of antidepressants. We see patients that are high risk. So when there's self-harm and suicide and things like that. And there's lots of different types of psychiatrists. So I'm a trainee in general adult psychiatry so I will see anyone between the age of 18 and 65 and whatever they present with so that will be everything PTSD anxiety depression schizophrenia bipolar affective disorder personality disorders so all of that I will see then you have learning disability psychiatrists so they will see anyone with a learning disability forensic psychiatry there is old age psychiatry um, child and adolescent psychiatry and uh, another area called medical psychotherapy so they do similar to what psychologists do but they are qualified doctors so just another way of getting psychological therapy so there's lots of different types of psychiatrists and depending on what you're presented with that's how you will be seen by psychiatrists then we kind of work with you I generally see my patients at intervals of two to three months start them on medication see how they're doing see if they're ready for therapy because it's never that um sometimes medic i 
I, I'm a strong believer that medication alone cannot help things. They might kickstart things, but generally need therapy or to work through some kind of things, especially if you're seeing me and tells me that there's something more complex going on. There's usually trauma at the source of why this has started. Um, so I generally try to start talking about therapy and get the patients ready to engage in therapy. So that's really where I work. And we work in inpatient settings, so mental health hospitals where we have a ward and patients are admitted, and then also outpatient basis, so a clinic setting. Just depends on the level of risk that the patient is presenting with and where they need to be looked after. Similar to physical health, you can see your GP, but actually, if you have a serious infection, you need to be in hospital and be treated by a team there. So that's like a general overview of how it works. Thank you for for that. That's really, really informative. So, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that in in terms of the treatment, is there any any component where you are talking about lifestyle changes as well as the medication and the therapy? And again, this may be something that might be shifting now or there might be a potential shift, but what's what's the status on it? Do you do look at other lifestyle factors to help people with their treatment? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and I kind of learned, so I learned from my experience, I'm like, actually, walking is helping me, having a better diet is helping me. And then I'm listening to so many podcasts, it's so easy for me to learn all that knowledge, all the studies that are happening, rather than having to look at a paper and read it and understand it, I can now listen to podcasts researchers directly talking to me telling about the benefits of using things like diet and exercise meditation mindfulness all these things so I very much try to incorporate that into my care Um, that's not everyone because they almost think that actually if someone is unwell enough to see a psychiatrist they possibly couldn't do any of these things whereas I see it as the foundation this isn't I, I I don't see if I see a psychotic patient, I'm obviously not going to tell them to do mindfulness. But what I can tell them to do is let's start improving your diet. Let's start getting you walking when things are getting better. That can be part of their therapy. When they're on the ward, I can tell them, okay, let's go to the courtyard. Let's just have a little walk around. Them, walk around. Because that's not going to make them feel worse in any way. If they are able to mobilize, it's only going to make things better. So I am a, kind of a strong advocate of doing that. I will use my own experiences to try to encourage patients to do things so be like you know what? I actually found that really hard and I do find it really hard to inc- incorporate exercise into my daily routine because of I'm doing lots of virtual appointments I'm sitting at my desk so I tell them I've had a struggle but this is how I've started you might want to um, try it like this and then at my next appointment let me know how you've got on I'll update you on how I'm getting on with it as well so I try to do a, a lot more of that If you speak to other psychiatrists, they might not be doing that because we are not taught about this directly in our curriculum. It's slowly getting there. And there are loads of psychiatrists that are practicing like this, but it's generally quite a new field, like you said. Um, But I do hope that it's the direction we go in and it becomes a larger component of what we do. I believe that every team should have one person that's in charge of promoting lifestyle medicine so that I can tell my patient, okay, look, we've talked about a few things, but I actually need you to see I don't know, Sharon, who's going to spend some more time with you, put a plan in place, and they can continue motivating you. Because I can tell the patient something, but I'm going to see them every two months. And that's not enough to keep them going. It's like I kind of slip it. And I usually kind of slip it in at the end of my thing. It's not going to be the focus of my appointment. They're coming to see me for medication. So if I speak about walking for the whole appointment, they're really going to feel like they didn't get the best service from me. So I try to sneak it in there. But it is a balance because patients expect something of me. The service expects something of me. Um, so I really think it is something that's that's coming into play more. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the, the bottom line for me is I don't believe that there's a human being alive that's not going to benefit from eating better food, 
from doing a bit more movement, from being aware of stress and having finding ways to manage it, to improving their sleep, improving their connections and their, their you know the love in their life, happiness. There's not a human being alive that's not going to benefit from those things. So I think the medical system. And it's happening. Like we know there's a shift happening. We've got you know, BSLM and people who are promoting lifestyle medicine. There's you know, um, Nutritank who are bringing it into the um, um, doctor's uh, curriculum as well. So this, this shift is happening. And <clears throat> I just think, because this is all I do on a day-to-day basis when it comes to diabetes patients, it's really, and it's just, and, and, and I know this because the, the patients I speak with, they say, oh, you know, I've got my family doing, even though they're not diabetic, I got them doing the things that you asked me to do and it's improved their, whatever it might be. And so, yeah, this, this, this idea of this holistic, this lifestyle approach, I think is beneficial for everyone. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I do see a point in the future where all medical disciplines the, the basis and the foundation of everything is going to be lifestyle. It's going to be all the things that we've just spoken about. So it's great. And, I, and I, do you know what? I think it needs people like you. It needs people who are, uh, who maybe haven't been educated, taught this way, but are taking this on board themselves, are educating themselves, are, you know, listening to the, to the evidence and, and using it in a, in a clinical setting and, and seeing the benefit. Because I think once you start to get those results with your patients, then that's when, people will start to take notice. Oh, okay. This stuff does well. You know, someone, I, I've said this before, someone's got to push the first domino. So I think being that person and, and being involved in that, in that movement is, is fantastic. So yeah, great, great work on that. I think that's something that we, we all need going forward. Um, and another thing I wanted to touch on, on when it comes to psychiatry and mental health is this stigma, you know, and I think I spoke about this with, um, Charlotte, uh, the lifestyle psychiatrist, I'm sure, no, you know, Charlotte, um, and, you know, there's this, certainly when I was growing up as a kid, there was this huge stigma with, you know, you just met, said mental, mental hospital, right? That, that phrase, I remember my mum used to threaten me, right? I'll take you, will take you to the mental hospital, right? And I just be like, what's at the mental hospital? And you just get this image and, and it's TV, it's media, it's movies, you know, where these people in straight jackets and, you know, banging their heads are going to, and I'm, I'm sure that does exist. But when we talk about mental health in 2022, it's not about that. And I think we need to try and overcome that stigma. And I know that in the world that we live in, and I mean, you know, we, you, know, you and I, we surround us, we listen to podcasts about these things. We, we follow people on Instagram, you know, our world, mental health is just, it's normal, right? It's everyone has, everyone suffering mental ill health, sorry, I should say. Everyone, some people suffer from mental health in all different ways, shapes or form. Everybody, you know, from celebrities to the queen to, to, to every, the person on the street. Um, but you go outside of that, outside of that bubble that we live in, I feel like the majority of people still have this stigma with mental ill health. And I know this because when we talk about it on our program in the Diabetes Prevention Program, you do see people think, no, that, you know, I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm about that. Yeah. Not, I'm not here for that. Yeah, I'm not, don't mean to offend anyone, but it's, I'm not mental. You know, that's, that's, mm, that's the, the, the comment yeah. I've had. And yeah. so I just feel like we need, there just needs to be a little bit more done to increase the awareness. And I know the NHS are doing really good work in the background trying to promote this. Um, but yeah, do you, do you still feel there's, there's as someone who's, you know, under 30, who's kind of coming up in the world, do you feel there's still that stigma around, about, around mental ill health? Massive. And it's, it's really funny that you bring this up because I was literally having this conversation with my husband at breakfast today. And I was, I was like angry and frustrated in that discussion because I just said, well, the truth is, and it's not even just the Asian community, that stigma 
is is everywhere whether you're white black caucasian asian wherever whatever you are you there is that stigma around mental health so as society we stigmatize mental health people with mental health conditions people that work in mental health uh, mental health hospitals all of that so that really needs to change and the change yes it can come from the nhs but it has to really come from us so we have to start talking about it in the most open way and it also so to create like a safe space that if people are suffering mental illness that they can speak about it and feel safe speaking about it and it is so much more easier for me to say this because i have not been through a severe mental illness for people that experience psychosis it is the most it's frightening thing to see to actually go through it i cannot even begin to imagine what it's like i can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be a relative of someone that has had a psychotic episode but what i do know and because i see all these patients is that there is so many of them and that person thinks that they're alone because their stigma stops them from speaking about it so what we've got is let's say we've got a community of i don't know 400 people now one percent of people have a psychotic episode so four of them in there will feel really lonely now four of them could come together and talk about their experiences let's say each person has 10 people in their support system that would mean that there's 44 people out of that hundred that could come together and talk about their experiences that's just under half and that's how we overcome stigma that we start talking about these experiences because then that person that one percent that one in a hundred does not feel alone anymore and it has to start with us and it is it is hard to put that responsibility on the person that has been through the illness and the relatives of the person that has been through the illness but we are just propagating the problem if we are being quiet about it and I don't know how we give courage and bravery to these people to start speaking about their experiences and and that's actually one of the main reasons I started the podcast I wanted it to be a place where people can come and speak about their experiences. Many of them would have been through the hardest part and now they are on the recovery side so they feel a bit better about talking about it. But I really want people to start having that conversation, hear it and and remember, and it sounds cliche, but that you're not alone because you can literally feel like, oh my God, no one in the world has been through this such an awful situation. How can this happen to us? We're a stable family with a good income. This only happens to people from that sociodemographic um, kind of background. No, it doesn't. I know so many Gujaratis that have had a psychotic episode because I get people in my DMs asking me, my mom's going through this, my dad's going through this, my brother's going through this. Can you kind of signpost me to some advice? And I send them lots of resources to read, to educate them. But they're still suffering in silence and everyone everyone thinks, oh, it's just me. No, it's not. There's, there's so many people that are going through this. So it really needs to start with each individual trying to reduce the stigma. Yeah, I think that's that's I think that's such an important point. And um, you mentioned, you know, the podcast and you mentioned just just talking about it. I think the more people hear people talk about it and and you're right, people it is it is lonely. It's 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 it does feel like you just it's just you. It's like nobody else is going through this. And and I think when you start to hear and again just relating it to something completely different, which is the work I do on the diabetes prevention program, you know, someone hears in the, in session one, we always talk about pre-diabetes and what you know. What did you think with the first time you heard that word or you were told? And people tell their stories, and there's always aha moments around the room because I can see people going, "Oh yeah, I thought the same thing." Gosh, it's not just me. And I think that's the power of the group. I think and that, that this is just a, a sidetrack, but 
when they hear pe their peers talking about it, people who look like them, who, you know, maybe I have the same level of income as them, you know, on the same social, socioeconomic, you know, scale as them, then they start to think, oh, or like you said, they see people at all different levels of, mm -hmm. of society mm -hmm. and they think, oh, wow, there's he, you know. Well, it can happen to him. Yeah, it can yeah. Ha happen to him, happen to, you know. And I talk about it from my my experience with it as well, you know, the experience I had when I, in, in my pr previous career, just to say, look, we all go through this and it's okay, right? And I love this the phrase, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And it's it's all part of this shared human experience because we all go through this. And I think just just and, and you're doing the right thing, you know, creating that awareness. Um, the, the podcast, which I want to talk about, talk about next. You know, these these are the these are the ways that we're going to help people to to normalize it and to not make it so trivial and just treat it like any other condition. You know, people and and I'll look back to my time in the corporate world. You know, people will people will happily call up their employer when they're you know, they've got a cough or a cold or a flu or, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not well. But what about when they're not feeling mentally stable and they're not feeling, you know, right in the head? They, the, the first thing comes, they don't know what it is, right? It's like, what, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I feel like crap. I don't want to go to work. And then they start, then that's when the lies start. That's when all the hiding starts. Oh, well, I've got this wrong with me. I've got this wrong with me. And, and then, and you just go down this, this, this wormhole of um, just, just, it's almost like you're trying to hide that there's something wrong. And I think that just needs to be normalized that, you know, someone calling up an employee and saying, look, Hey, I'm not feeling great today. I, I just need to stay at home, you know, for whatever reason that should be okay. And I, and I think, um, not only do we, the, the medical profession and the medical side of it, but you know, the, the employers and, and the corporate world, and I'm quite fortunate in the company that I work with, they're very, very good with this. You know, they, they, you mentioned safe spaces, you know, we have, um, safe spaces where people can come to talk and we, we have little, um, these, these zoom calls every, every so often where people can just come and share their, their experiences and just, again, just normalizing it. Um, which I think is so important. And, and the last point I want to touch on is, is within, you mentioned the Gujarati and the Indian community. I think there, there's a huge amount of stigma around, you know, lots of different illnesses, but particularly mental, mental ill health. And I think something that we, we talked about this, right. That the trauma that our, parents' generation would have had to go through being kicked out of their country and coming over here and, you know, trying to make a living and, you know, trying to find somewhere to live and all of these things, learning a new language. I mean, that, it's going to have an impact on you, right? It's going to affect your, the way that you think. And, you know, it may not, it may not manifest itself in the moment, like all those years ago, but 20, 30, 40 years later, you start to see it, and, and I'm seeing. Unfortunately, I'm seeing some of that with my with my father, which which is which is sort of what what's happening to him now. And and that I I truly believe that comes from what happened, you know, many many years ago. So I think trying to normalise it within that community is is something that really really needs to happen. Yeah, it catches up with you. It always yeah. will. Yeah. You don't wake up one day and you've got depression. I always tell my patients, okay, I'm giving you medication, but I need you to understand this is not going to be the magic pill, because what you're experiencing right now has been in the making for the last 20 years. And we've got to a point where it's, I can actually see it now and it's impacting your day-to-day -day life, but it's always been there. So we need to take years to undo it, reprocess all that trauma, go through things and get you back to where you were. But this is not a, this is not something that just comes out the blue. It's not just a chemical imbalance. When we re reduce it to a chemical imbalance, you can't do justice to the illness. You will continue to, you'll become stable for a while, then you'll relapse, stable, relapse, and it'll just continue. It's like any, it's like any 
disease, any condition, right? It's getting to the root cause, right? So chemical imbalances, yes, you can address them with with chemicals, right? With, with, mm-hmm. with pharmaceuticals, yeah. right? You can address any chemical balance. You can bring someone's blood glucose back under control with metformin. But if you don't get to the root cause of what's creating that insulin resistance or whatever the imbalance is in the first place, whether it's uh, a trauma or uh, a, a, you know, PTSD or whatever that might be, if we don't get to that root cause, all you're doing is putting a Band-Aid on it. And, and I think that that's that's something that is shifting within the medical system. It's not just about diagnosis. Oh, this looks like that. Okay, have this and, and off you go. There, there needs to be that, that that extended care, which I know is, is happening. Um, so yeah, it's a very, very good point there. Um, let's talk about your, your podcast. You, you, you said earlier on about you're kind of at this stage of your career, you're, you and your husband, when you're trying to figure yourselves out, you know, you, you're approaching 30. Um, what does this next step, look like i mean you may not know and that's again a very very kind of uh, out there question but um you know you, you're doing the podcast so tell us a bit about that and then maybe that can lead on to other things that you're up to at the moment yeah so i started thinking about this podcast in about august i, I think i'd been we'd have been on a holiday and that's what generally when we get to pause do a lot of reflecting we do a lot of reflecting we think oh you want to do this but when we get back to our busy lives it sometimes doesn't materialize into anything because you just get so caught up. You haven't got that time to just sit back and think. So that's very much what happened um, with the podcast. I had the idea very, and it came from the place of, do you know what? There are so many stories that I want to share. Like I want to share all the stories that I hear in my clinic. Obviously I can't do that because of confidentiality reasons. So I thought I want to share these elsewhere on a platform that people can just tap into it. And I wanted to um, join up the conversation. So we talk about mental illness. There'll be podcasts that just speak about mental illness. Then we'll be, there'll be podcasts that talk about personal development. Um, but I really wanted to make that one conversation because it really is. We are always moving on a spectrum and at different points in our life from a place of human flourishing, or we might be experiencing severe mental illness. And most of us kind of sit in the middle somewhere. Um, there'll be a small percentage that are at severe mental illness stage, but we are constantly moving. It's not like once you have kind of like a severe de- episode of depression, you are just in that range. You recover and you get a bit better and you might come towards human flourishing. You might not quite reach there or you might get there because that experience would have given you that kind of experience to grow from it. So I really wanted to bring these two conversations together. So I wanted a variety of people, people that have been through the mental health system and others who have been through difficulties, but found other ways um, to get to human flourishing. So I thought, well, I'll just start with my um, friends and family so that I have at least kind of some material to go by. Um, And actually I had such a good response. I had loads of people reaching out and saying, can I share my story? And they are so brave and courageous for doing that. And I'm so thankful for them because really the podcast wouldn't be anything without them it's very much them talking and me guiding the conversation and they're all conversations about some people that have been through some really difficult times been through mental illness themselves and come out the other side and what they've learned from it and I hope people can listen to it and see what recovery looks like and just again going back to that whole thing we are just moving across the spectrum it's not you have mental illness you don't have mental illness it's not like that it's 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 gradual and we can slip somewhere we can slip down that curve we can go up and most of us are probably not at the point of human flourishing and that's where I want to get get them to and I really want that for my patients every day in my clinic but I I don't have um the I'm not allowed to continue seeing them if they're not presenting with 
mental symptoms. So I have to kind of discharge them as soon as there's recovery. So I can never get them to the stage that I want to. So I, I use this podcast as kind of like an, where I can feel a bit satisfied as an add-on kind of um, therapy, I guess. So they can they can listen to it and, and see, okay, well, I'm, I'm free of mental illness but how do I now move to this next stage of of getting the most out of life because it's not well-being isn't just the absence of symptoms it's about flourishing and getting the most out of life so that's that's where the kind of podcast came from so I've been doing that and I've been like on and off Instagram as I feel like it not very consistent with it um, but then we were, me and my husband were very much thinking over the Christmas holidays and that time leading up to it. Um, we were like, okay, well, we've, we've done lots of reflecting and we know we want to get something more out of life. How do we kind of actually stick to that rather than just thinking about it on holiday, coming back, not doing anything about it. And then on the next holiday doing the same process and, it, and, and being there, we could continuously just be there like every year on year. So we thought, okay, what can we do? So we started doing lots of reflecting and then putting like plans in place, reflecting on the plan, actioning it and doing that on a daily, weekly and monthly basis. And I was like, this is actually really good. And I'm sure my friends would find this useful. I'm sure my family would find this useful. So I thought, okay, I took the leap. I was like, Rad, shall we make this into a workshop? Shall we just do a workshop? And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay, instead of just doing a one, one-off workshop, shall we make this into a me- membership program where people can come and then they can be part of a group which lasts, I don't know, three months, six months, 12 months, because that's what we needed. That's what kept us going. It wasn't just a one-off brainstorming session. We needed accountability. We needed each other's support. We wanted to reflect and evaluate. And he was like, yeah, that sounds good. So he, he's at the point where in six months time, he's going to finish his GP training and he's looking at where he wants to go. And he is pretty much saying goodbye to GP. He might pick up a few shifts here or there, but he is starting from, I, I mean, we're not going to say starting from scratch. He is finding another route with the skills and experience he's got. Um, so I thought, okay, well, this could be one of the things you do. Again, I'm making it very clear. It's one of the things. It's not going to be his one and only because I don't I don't want to pigeonhole him into one place. I don't want him to feel that he needs to just do this one thing. So in January, we just decided we we're going to go for it. We put together all we've been working on, formed it into a workshop, registered a company, put together a website and decided on a date we're going to do our workshop, which is in a week's time, um, 6th of March. This will probably be released after that. And at that point, we're going to release our program and we're going to see what comes of it. And like you said, it's very much a passion project. This is what's really kind of giving us passion every day and getting us really excited. Um, And it's a way that I can fulfill myself. I'm helping people in my clinic with severe mental illness. This is how I can help and support people that are living their everyday lives, but not getting to the point of human flourishing. And that's what really on. So I get to work across the whole spectrum with what I do in my nine to five and then what I'm doing outside of my nine to five as well. So that's where we're at at the moment. Amazing. Um, I think it's a great, it's a great um, passion project. It's a great pro- yeah, and, and we say passion project, but this is just something that you are um that fulfills you that makes you want to get up in the morning that makes you want to you know go out and, and engage with people and you're still you know there's the, still the common denominators of, of working with people is still the common denominator of helping people is still you know putting putting positive information out there so i think that's amazing you mentioned you talk about human flourishing i just want to touch on that it's a really really fascinating phrase what does that what does that mean what does that look like what is the human what is what's the flourished human look like in in your eyes in my eyes, it's 
being able to um, find your purpose for that t- for that kind of time in your life, and then um, your actions being in line with that purpose and with your intentions, whatever they are. But that doesn't that doesn't stay static. It's always dynamic and evolving. So it's not like I decide today what my purpose is and I do that for the next five years. I might have an overall vague purpose, but I have lots of other kind of projects coming off it and then lots of actions which come of that. So it's like a huge mind map and I'm constantly re-looking at that mind map and seeing, okay, how can I share all the qualities I have with society? And that's how I see yourself as human flourishing because the way that you can flourish is share all your experience and expertise with others. So if we all did that in society, our society would be so full. It really would be because we all have so much talent to give to the world. If we think about how much of our talents we're using at the moment, we're probably using about 10%, 20%. So that's that's what I see as human flourishing. And through the program, we do that. We do some stuff on purpose, finding your purpose, and then actually how does purpose turn into action? And it's very much how I'm leading my life. And that that doesn't focus on, I know what the end point is. I have no idea what the end point is. But if I concentrate on that, I'm limiting myself because I'm saying this is what I'm going to do. But by just starting the project, I could, there could be lots of things that come up, lots of connections I make, networking I do, and I will be creative. So next week I might think, actually, we need to add this onto the program. We need to have guest speakers coming in to make it a better program. I don't know where it's going to turn, but I'm not limiting myself because then I'm just going to go down the same track. I'll be literally doing what I've done in the last 10 years, but doing it to myself rather than someone else doing it to me. So I'm not looking at what the end point is. I am allowing myself to be evolving and dynamic and, and see where it leads me. And that's the best way to be ambitious, I feel. Rather than setting yourself a goal, just saying, I am going to share all the qualities I have of myself the best way possible with society. I love that. And I think you talk about goals, you know, and the endpoints. I think the problem with goals is that they're outcome based. You know, it's like, I need to get to this outcome. I need to earn this much money. I need to get this many followers. I need to lose weight. Well, what happens when you get there? right? You, you talk about the, the destination. It's like when you get to the destination, I'll tell you what, in my experience, it's often an anticlimax, right? Whereas what you're saying is living in the moment, enjoying what you're doing. And you said it about passions, your purpose, this word purpose, it, it, it's confusing because people feel like, I don't know what my purpose is. And I'm, I'm taking this from, again, from Stephen Bartlett, who, who says it um, very, very differently than I do, but um, he's quite, quite, quite uh, passionate about it. Um, in that, you know, your purpose is going to evolve. It's going to change depending on the stage of your life. And that's okay, right? Let's go back to, we talked about my daughter. She likes playing with water or whatever she's doing. She might not be doing that in 20 years time, but she's really passionate about it right now. That doesn't mean that's all she's going to do for the rest of her life. Your husband's another great example. You know, we talked about the power of walking away. I mean, he's walking away from being a GP, so people listening to this thinking, what is wrong with Why the guy? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? You're a GP, but he knows it's not it's not serving him. It's not moving him forward. And the power of him walking away is absolutely going to repay him. The universe will conspire to help you to do the things that you want to do. You know, if you said to me back in 2010, when I decided to quit my job and, and become a personal trainer, that in 2022, I'm going to be sitting here with four cameras around me recording a podcast about to do my 50th episode. I'd be like, no, don't be silly. I'm not going to be a podcaster. But 
you know, you don't know, and this is the same with me. I don't know what the end, the destination is, and I don't really care at this point, right? And I have a vague trajectory. I have a vague kind of, you know, my values. My values direct me towards a particular, uh, a particular way. But where that goes, you know, it's open. It's completely open. And I think people who are trying to find their purpose. I think what you what they have to realize is that it's not one fixed thing, right? And and I think when you try to and this is the problem with society, isn't it? It's there's 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 full stops. It's there's like boxes you have to. It's fit boxes, in. yeah. You you get a degree, you do this, and you know, that. I just don't feel that our life's purpose is is that way. And you know anyone who and I've I've spoken to people, many people like this, whose purpose and trajectory of life has changed in the last three. I mean, whose hasn't? Right? If we look pre-COVID to what people were doing, what they were, were, the way they were thinking, the way they were living their lives. And you maybe look at those people now, there's so many people who have just completely gone a different way or taken a turn here or maybe quit something that they felt wasn't, wasn't, wasn't uh, serving them. So I think I love the way that you, you talk about that. And I think that can be helpful for a lot of people because there are going to be a lot of people, you know, who are in a very similar stage of life that you and your husband are at, who, you know, are professionals who are, I'm fitting in that box at the moment and then just thinking, no, there's got to be more. And I think just helping those people to give them a process, give them a way of discovering what's next and, and, you know, how they can live their life so that they are doing things that are meaningful and and, and fulfilling. And, you know, I, I truly believe that when people give back, that's the first thing you mentioned, you know, giving back and putting yourself out there. I think when you're giving back to, to the world and you're giving back to the community and you are doing something that really enlightens you and, you know, makes you want to get up in the morning, everything else takes care of itself, right? Money, fame, power, all of these other things, which are outcomes. Oh, I want money. I want fame. I want power. Well, I think those are just side effects, right? They are side effects of living a fulfilling life and those things will come. And, you know, I, I think that's, that, that's the way I try to look at them because, again, I've gone through that myself. I, I, I put myself into a career which was completely different to what I was doing before. And I didn't think, well, I need to earn this much money. I just thought I need to be the best at this that I can because that's what I want to – that's what that's what really drives me in every day to get up. And by doing that, you know, those other things came. And, and you know, and, and, and when I say they came, am I – Am I retired and I'm, I don't need to work ever again? No, but it came so that I could continue to do what I'm doing, and that's led me to where I am today. So I think that's that's wonderful the way that you uh, the way that you frame that. Um, gosh, we've been speaking for so long. There's there's so much more great. that, that I want to I want to <laughs> speak about, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna just park it there, and hopefully we can do mm-hmm. it a part two part two 100%. one day. Um, where can people find out a bit more about what you're up to, Devika? How can they get in touch? Give us give us some information. Yeah. So I have my Instagram, which is at Dr. Devika Patel. And then there's also the website, which has most of our stuff on it now, which is www.drdevikaandrajiv.com. So that's both mine and my husband's kind of venture and the community that we're building. Um, at the moment, it's... Um, just the membership program that we'll be releasing. It's going to have lots of blogs on there coming up soon as well. Because again, with what I've intentionally done with the website is I haven't made it one specific niche. I've left it open so that we can use that platform to 
um, discover our different interests. So one of my interests right now is cooking. So there's going to be a large part of cooking blogs on there and videos, and that might turn into a cooking course with my mom. I don't know where it's going to go, but again, leaving it very open. My husband's very much into traveling. So that's going to form some lots of traveling blogs and see how that kind of turns into what he likes to do. So there'll be lots of stuff, loads of updates. It will continue to evolve as me and my husband do. Um, so it's a good place to just get signed up to the newsletter so we can keep you updated with what's going on. And there'll be loads and loads of free stuff on there because I truly believe that you don't have to pay for these things. So we'll be giving our most valuable stuff free. And then if you need that extra support, you want to be part of the community, then you can pay that bit extra and be part of it as well. Love it. So I'll, yeah, thank you for that. I'll, I'll make sure that I link in all those those um, websites and your Instagram on the on the episode description and show thank notes. Um, we need more reels. We need more reels. Okay, when's fine. the next When's the next reel coming? I want to. Well, I, I told my husband. I was like, I'm planning the reels today. <laughs> we will record them tomorrow. And he didn't look too impressed, but he was quite easily persuaded. So you, yeah, <laughs> you, you got him up. You got him up on on the one occasion. So that's 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 the that's the first that's the first step. First step. Yeah, that's yeah. the dipping the toe. Um, Devika, thank you so much. Uh, go and check out Devika's Instagram. Go and check out the website. Uh, go and show us some love. I think it's uh, it's fantastic what you're doing. And yeah, just looking forward to seeing seeing you grow and uh, and talking again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here.